The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs recommends Daryl Lee Australian licorice for all your candy cravings. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Jurassic Park, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Mr. Show with Bob and David, Matilda, Army of Darkness, The Wizard of Oz, Pepsi commercials from the 1990s, The Nutty Professor, Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and AI, Artificial Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, one is glad to have a guest on one's podcast. One is glad to introduce one's audience to one's friend, Alyssa Jeanette. Uh, Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you, Louie. <laughs> uh, I've never referred to you as Louie, so I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, you can refer to me as Louie, as one, as it, if you need to. <laughs> so, Alyssa. Well, for reasons that we will discuss. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, why don't you tell the audience what movie we're going to be discussing today? Uh, we're going to be discussing the movie Bicentennial Man from 1999, starring Robin Williams. That is correct. The 1999 Robin Williams, what I perceived as a comedy when I saw trailers for it, when it first came out, I thought it was going to be a Robin Williams, what's the word? Just a a situational comedy, but a movie. Yeah. The movie version of a sitcom. (laughs) Robot lives with family. And the marketing for this movie, I think, because I didn't actually end up seeing it, gave me this really weird idea of what this movie was until I finally watched it. And I'm very, very glad that you brought this movie onto the podcast today because I had never seen it until I watched it for for this show. And I am in love with this movie. It is so much better than I was expecting and so much more thought-provoking and philosophical than I was expecting. I'm so glad. I'm. It's interesting to hear you say that because I definitely, okay, so I first saw Bicentennial Man, I'm guessing on, I think on television, probably on like TNT or something in like the early 2000s um, when I was a teenager or young teenager. And I remember really enjoying it at the time. Um, but as time went on, like I kind of like always had the sense of like, okay, I know this isn't like a like a, it is a movie that got a lot of accolades. Like it was not well reviewed. <laughs> um, and like, I, so like, I always kind of had that, that understanding that it was a little bit of like a, not necessarily a B movie, but like a little bit of a B movie. Um, but it's kind of interesting to watch it now with the context of like adulthood and like the way that technology has progressed. Like this movie starts in 2005 mm-hmm. and like to be now in 2020 and obviously things are very different than they anticipate in the movie. Um, but not for the reasons that you think. And I I find that really interesting. That's always one of the most fun things in sci-fi movies is when you watch a specific decades movie version of what the future is going to look like. One of my favorite aspects of that is future fashion. This movie has some fun future fashion that we're going to get into as well as the future technology. I think one of the things you're referring to, we'll definitely circle back to this, is Sir's iPad crossword puzzle thing that he has at one point. Oh my um, God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah oh my there's, God. 
the there's adding a lot of, machine. <laughs> oh my gosh. There, yeah, there's a lot of examples of stuff like that that we're going to pick out that are they're a lot of fun when you think about them in the context of 21 years later after this movie came out. What do we currently have that has eclipsed the things that they imagined would be in the future? This movie is based upon the short story by Isaac Asimov of the same name. No, actually, I'm sorry. It's based on a novelette in the Robot series by Isaac Asimov and the novel The Positronic Man by Isaac Asimov and Robert Silverberg. Have you have you read either of the the novelette? I never have, but I did go look it up on Wikipedia last night to prepare mm-hmm. myself. But I mean, honestly, they, they're pretty similar. Like there's, yeah. they, it goes pretty closely. Like obviously they added a more overt, like romantic storyline to the movie, but there's a lot that's pretty close. Yeah. I, one, one thing I noticed that is interesting, one interesting difference is the fact that the first person or the first being that Andrew tries to go to to become human is a robot surgeon that refuses him on the basis of him being a robot. Um, in the movie, it's Stephen Root, who is both a creator and engineer of robots, but also is, has direct contempt for them, which is very, very interesting. Before we get into the movie, the first thing we're going to talk about is the actual opening shot of the movie, the beginning of the movie. But before we actually get into all of that, Alyssa, I want to ask you one of the big questions that I like to ask my guests on this podcast. And I want to approach this discussion from this starting point, because I think as we talk about this character in this movie and the questions this movie asks, our definition of what a robot is might change throughout this discussion. So I want to ask early on, what is your current definition of a robot? And another way I like to ask that question is if somebody says the word robot or is talking about robots as an abstract concept, and you have an image that gets conjured up in your mind. Is there a specific robot that you think of or a form of a robot? Okay, I think that my sort of basic definition would be a non-organic machine constructed and programmed to perform tasks semi-autonomously or autonomously. But I think that there's a slightly separate answer when you talk about the kind of robot that you visualize because through, through media and through the way that we talk about the idea of robots, like robots have become a separate concept from like mechanics uh, in many ways. Like robots are like humanoid machines, mm. but I don't necessarily... Like, I mean, like a Roomba is a robot, right? Like, even though it's not humanoid. Yes, um, a toaster is a robot. It's semi-autonomous. Right, exa- exactly, yeah. exactly. So I tend to think of it a lot more broadly when I'm talking about the definition of a robot because I think it's important to take into account the non... I mean, when we think about like a robot takeover, for example, like mm-hmm. air quotes around that, it's not just the humanoid robots that could harm you, right? <laughs> like, we rely on robots for a lot of things. and like Arguably the def- robot... Yeah, arguably the robot takeover has already happened in the form of the internet. We're dependent on it. We cannot break away from it at this point. Well, and not even just that, but also like the idea that like money isn't real, right? Mm. Like this is like that, that's like an element of like robotics that where we just rely on technology to do our banking for us. And like, if that went away, that's society, (laughs) right? True. Yeah, it's a, it's a shadow on the wall. It's an agreed upon concept that we all have to continue agreeing upon or else it completely loses its purpose. Which is such a fascinating mirror into what we're going to talk about in the movie, about like the, the agreed upon concept of robot versus human. 
Yeah, especially also because incidentally, it, money is very real in this world, even to a robot. This robot has an mm-hmm. income and he uses it for his own personal gain and to and also to help others in tremendous ways. But, but that is a very fascinating concept of it, is this robot participates directly in the economy yeah. uh, with actual <laughs> none money. None of us are, exe- are like exempt from capitalist society, even in the future, apparently. <laughs> yep. Uh, Alyssa, do you use terms like android or cyborg to distinguish uh, a certain type of uh, robot from a more simplistic robot like a Roomba or a toaster? I mean, I, an android, I guess, is much more directly humanoid. Cyborg would ha- would is by definition incorporated with like an organic human, right? So yes. that that would be a separate category for me. But so, androids would be like C three PO. Okay, okay. This movie, or I mean, has, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, yeah, is an android. Yeah, this movie has a very clear line that it draws between robot and android that Andrew actually in in a line of dialogue we're going to get to uh, something he says to sir when he's trying to buy his freedom at that point declares that he has evolved or changed gone through a state of change in his being from robot to android and my my interpretation of the difference there of what an android is based on what I'm going to say is Isaac Asimov's definition of it is a, a android resembles a human in some way so that's the very clear line between, you know, something like C-3PO, which has two legs, two arms, sometimes has two legs and two arms. They're constantly being blasted off of him and replaced. But <laughs> he has a bipedal humanoid form. He speaks like a human. He's actually programmed to speak in whatever language uh, the being that is interacting with in order to be accepted or resemble more of a humanoid being. Well, and his purpose is to relate to humans. Mm-hmm. So like... And in a way that, like, for example, R2-D2's purpose is not to relate to humans. No, R2-D2 is a spy, actually. And R2-D2 is programmed to lie. And he does so uh, for for personal gain or to protect secrets or to protect his allies. Something I think C-3PO is actually incapable of. So this is actually a really good two robots to use as an example for this. Is R2-D2 a robot, whereas C-3PO is an android? Yes, I would definitely say that. I would say that too. One thing that does throw a wrench into that is a line C-3PO says when he introduces himself, he says, I'm C-3PO, human-cyborg relations. And that's, we're not, we're not, uh, this is not the Star Wars podcast today, but it is an interesting (laughs) thing that he says that. And I'm not exactly sure what he means by that, by cyborg in that context. In Bicentennial Man, in Bicentennial Man, I would argue, and we're going we're gonna to unpack this more when we get to the ending of the movie, by the time Andrew is working with Oliver Platt, I would say he's churning himself into a cyborg, which it's kind of the opposite way that we usually see cyborgs, which are humans getting robot parts added to them. But this is a robot getting synthetic, but human parts added to him to turn him into a human. Uh, that but he's is still a really excellent machine. point. Yeah, so totally. I would say I would say this character actually goes through all three phases, all three categories of robot. He's like a Pokemon that starts out as robot, then android, and then evolves into cyborg by the end. Hmm. And okay, let's let's go into the beginning of the movie. The opening, the very the very first thing that I noticed actually wasn't even the opening shot. It was the great soothing music that we're hearing. And it swells into this piano sound and this combined with these industrial sounds. And we're seeing this factory 
where Andrew and, and the rest of the NDRs are being built. Do you, do you recognize the composer of this music, James Horner? who uh, is also known for Titanic, Titanic. Avatar, mm-hmm. Deep Impact, a lot of epic movies, a lot of big, big epic scores. And right. I actually did, I found myself humming the theme of this, some of the themes of this movie in my head right after watching it when I was like going to sleep a couple of times. So it's it's very good music. It's a very good score. And I like the way that it combines the piano and these factory sounds as we're seeing Andrew being built, especially because the piano becomes such a big part of his life later on, that part of true. the way he relates to people. These are so these are the first things, the first images we see of the movie. But then we cut to this beautiful huge home on a very expansive, gorgeous lawn. And uh, I'm describing it that way because later on we see more of the skyline as the the, the uh, place is being developed, the whole city is being developed more, and skyscrapers are going up. But when we start, we're in this very idyllic, almost secluded, suburban, but still like kind of suburban uh, style home of of what is very a very nice home. Mm-hmm. And we see a van pull up, a very cool semi futuristic van, because we are in uh, the not too distant future as the very cool robotic font is telling us. <laughs> and these two very casual delivery guys show up to deliver the android, or the robot at this point, to their to the house of Sir and the rest of the Martins. Did you have any thoughts about these delivery guys or like any, any, uh, any, any of this opening bit? Well, the entirety of that sequence... Okay, so first of all, it, it is a very extended opening sequence in the factory. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is part of the reason I wasn't necessarily like concentrating on the score. First of all, it's not something that I typically do anyway, which is interesting because I love music. I just don't necessarily connect to movie scores. A good um, score is something you either super notice or if it's really good, you don't notice it. And that's kind of the point. Right. That's very fair. And obviously music is like a big element of this plot. But I think that if it's not integrated into those into the actual narrative, it's something that doesn't necessarily occur to me as much. I would say that my notice of the delivery guys in particular, especially kicked in when they leave immediately (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they, they bring the robot in and they're like, cool, peace, enjoy. And I'm like, it takes longer to set up the fucking Internet. Like they are clearly not technicians. This is very quotidian to them that they're just they're just dropping off another robot. One of them's like, oh, it's a nice house. The other guy's like, I've seen better. And they're, yeah, you're right. They just drop him off. They open the case, make sure all of his accessories are there. He comes in like this action figure case with all Mm -hmm. his accessories and foam. That's it. And then they're like, enjoy your NDR. Have a nice day, sir. And that's it. Yeah, it's very quotidian. And I think that is deliberate. It sets up, this is such a normal thing in this not too distant future. This is not a weird thing. Maybe it is to the little Pepsi girl, the little kid. Yeah, (laughs) like Kate Eisenberg. Yeah, the most adorable kid in the 90s, right? Or daughter, sister, Jesse Eisenberg's sister. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Way? Okay. Wait, older older or younger? Younger, I want to say. not. they're, They're very close in age, but I'm pretty sure she's younger. So the cute, the cute dimpled kid is 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 kind of the only one in this movie. She's our proxy into this is a little bit outside of normal. She's not used to this as as part of her reality yet, and neither are we as the audience. But everyone else in the film is either very casual about it, or we do get a lot of the, this movie treats us throughout the film, throughout the whole entire running time, to very very different reactions to robots and the way that humans choose to interact with them and choose to react to them. So Grace, the older sister in this family, is immediately hostile 
to the robot from the moment it opens up. Holy moly. I mean, we'll get to that a little bit later, but that child, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm concerned. (laughs) So the uh, Northam Robotics, NDR-114, in parentheses, he's a domestic model, which implies that they have a lot of other types of models. Alyssa, do you have any theories or ideas of what other types of models this company, Northam Robotics, is, is developing and putting out into the world? Well, apart from domestic, I suspect that they have various professional, like, varieties of robots that, like, do specific tasks that maybe are too dangerous for humans or, like, wear down human bodies, more like warehouse work. Yeah, okay. Maybe robots do that now, which, like, would be fine. (laughs) And in the novelette, Um, one is a surgeon. So there's, like, you know, it must be a line of medical bots. There's definitely one that is drawing lines on a a baseball diamond. So I guess it's a sports Mm -hmm. bot or a professional bot of some way. We see one, I think. Manual labor. Yeah, I think we see one that might have been a helicopter pilot. It's in a crashed helicopter. But who knows if right. it was the pilot or had some other job on there. Yeah, but the, the robot that we're meeting, NDR-114, serial number 583625, played by Robin Williams, steps out of this box. Um, the first thing that we see from his POV is sort of this Terminator scan view mm-hmm. where he's, he's still booting up, but we see that, that DOS sequence and he's analyzing everything in the room. And this is not the only moment in this movie, but there are several where I thought... If Tim Horner had composed slightly different music, this would be a horror film. Everything else is the same. Same framing, same shot, same performance, same camera angle, but just change the music, and this is now a horror film. Did you get that you sense J- at any point? James Horner? James Horner. Did I say, said did I say Tim Horner? <laughs> My bad. You know, James Horner, time, yes. James Horner. <laughs> yes. Um, it James definitely Horner. feels... Tim Horner. <laughs> it definitely feels horror-y. I mean, in general... It, that, honestly, that the first maybe like ten to fifteen percent of the movie it very much plays up the strangeness of mm-hmm. having this inhuman, I mean, inhuman presence in your home that whose only goal is to serve you and like it's yeah, like it's basically be in your business all the time. Which is, I was actually I was watching it with my husband and I turned to him at one point and I was like, it's so interesting to see this because there is an element of Downton Abbey here. Back when staffs were more common, people were always around. If you were a wealthy noble, there was always somebody in the room with you. There was no such thing as privacy. They were, because they were wallpaper, right? Like they were a servant. And I feel like there's a little bit of like a, like when you reintroduce that idea of like an ever-present staff like after it not really being a cultural thing for, you know, this in this context, like a hundred years, it's, you know, uncomfortable and it's kind of weird. And like, this thing is, and also it kind of seems like Sir didn't really consult the family before he bought it. Like, he's just like, here you go. Here's Surprise. our live-in robot servant. And you're like, Surprise oh my robot. God, uh, this, is, this thing also has to be like very expensive. And obviously they're very wealthy, which is really interesting because I'm fairly sure so also, uh, sort of like a dinosaur connection here, Sir is played by Sam Neill oh, yes, from Jurassic is. Park, and he's delightful, but he's like a clockmaker, but they're yeah. like clearly multimillionaires, and you're mm-hmm. like, what? And also a little bit on the nose to have him be a clockmaker. 
a little here, bit on the nose. Here, I think there is some justification, though, for him being that wealthy because later his, I guess, great-granddaughter, Portia, is a mm. antique rest. She does She's antique a restoration. Preservation architect, which is funny so, because having studied conservation a little bit myself, she she is. I mean, I think that she is a preservation architect, but she also is like conserving statues, like mm. small statues that you would like have in your home or like in like a garden, and that's not really the same thing. Like she would be working on like like when she's in the church, like large scale preservation like that. Like those are two very different jobs. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot that makes a lot of sense. I think the what the movie is is saying with that is, or with her being having that profession is that her great grandfather is a he made clocks, but he made like what would now be antique clocks, what would be artistic pieces that would sell for a lot of money. Sure. I think that he made functional clocks, but it seemed like because he had those books on woodworking in his basement and there were already tools down there for that sort of thing, that he had an art, that he was not only selling clocks, he was selling his art. So which, yeah, he's an, he's an artisan and craftsperson, which yeah. is also very interesting. And it is. That's not. That's not sort of the typical career, because I mean, I mean, I guess you would have to suggest that there's also generational wealth here, because usually the wealthy have the latitude to pursue that kind of thing as their sole source of income. You know, the the concept of class is not really investigated much in this particular movie. True. We don't see much of the rest of society, really. We see like that crowd scene in in San Francisco when Andrew is walking through the market and he and he sees Galatea for the first time. And there's a bit of a crowd. We see a lot of cool future fashion in that scene, but mm -hmm. there isn't really a much commentary there. There's not a lot of this contrast between Sir and 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 his family versus showing the downtrodden of society. We don't really get a, a view of that. Alyssa, have you seen Artificial Intelligence, which came out around the same time as Bicentennial Man? Oh my gosh. At this point, nearly 20 years ago, but I haven't seen it since then. I saw it a long time ago and only vaguely remember it. That is about when it came out. It came out in um, two, it came out in 2001. And so two years after this movie, it's it's very, very similar in a lot of ways. The, the, these two movies, AI and Bicentennial Man, by the way, go back and listen to my coverage of artificial intelligence with good friend Conrado Falco on a previous episode of Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Um, sorry for the self-plug. So <laughs> the, both movies explore a lot of the same really big sci-fi questions about us, about humans that are building robots and why we build them and what purpose we give them. And then what both movies also explore is the ways that we resent the robots that we built. We resent our own creation. And I think part of that is because we program them with only the things that we consider our positive traits. And we left out certain things like anger or violence or anything but our compassion and our intelligence. Those are the primary things that we gave our robots in both of these worlds, in Bicentennial Man and in Artificial Intelligence. So I think that there's a lot of resentment. And, and so we see, like, in this movie, we see Grace being openly hostile towards Andrew the moment she meets him. And we see Lloyd, Lloyd <laughs> Bradley Whitford, Mm -hmm. Also just being being awful to Andrew right away and consistently even later on in his life still being awful, awful. Again, this movie doesn't really explore 
like what, how do the working class actually feel about robots? Stephen Root has one line where he mentions growing resentment or growing fear of it. AI has an actual scene though of this like flesh fair where they're, they're, they're collecting wayward and runaway and, and uh, discarded and abandoned robots. And they're putting them in this carnival to destroy them in front of a crowd, gladiator style. And so we get a very, very stark view of how the rest of the world, the, the, rather than the wealthy elites that get to benefit from these servile robots, we get to see how the rest of society feels about them. Bicentennial Man is a little more sterile, maybe. It's a little more PG, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. it's intended to be a lot more uplifting, I guess. Like you said, more philosophical. That's, a good That's not to say AI isn't, but like it's maybe a little bit more of a warning than, than uh, Bicentennial Man is. Yes, I think Bicentennial Man is a little more forgiving of humanity itself than AI is. Yeah. Um, spo- big spoilers for AI. If you have not seen it, huge spoiler, all of humanity dies at the end. Uh, and only the robots that continued upgrading themselves and building more upgraded versions of themselves evolved or survived past the second ice age. In Bicentennial Man, we don't see the ultimate fate of humanity. Uh, we just see 200 years into the future. And we see where, at least where the government ends up. <laughs> so I, it's, I think it's a little more forgiving of, we forgive ourselves a little bit more with this movie. Chris, Chris Columbus has, I would say, a more We're a lot more optimistic view. about the way that humanity can be. Yeah. Chris, and I think Chris Columbus is in general more optimistic than Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg is typically optimistic. Which makes but, sense, yeah. But but him carrying uh, Stanley Kubrick's movie, and and I don't mean it to me to to be that he was doing the work for him. It's that Stanley Kubrick no, literally I died. <laughs> but him carrying that work forward is what I mean, and finishing mm-hmm. completing that movie. I think he gave it the honest ending that it would have had rather than maybe the feel-good Spielberg ending or Chris Columbus ending. Well, it's a little bit of like a white liberal fantasy in a lot of sure. ways. Like in, like in the way that we, I and mean, I very much enjoy the West Wing, but it's like a little bit like rewatching the West Wing where it's like, oh, you know, like here's this like wealthy, white, presumably progressive, I mean, maybe like liberal progressive family who are like, you know, we're, we're going to like teach this robot, like, things that no other robots would be taught. Like we're gonna like show him compassion and like make him part of our family. But then there's still that sort of like, but not quite, (laughs) you know, right? Yeah, we Um, have to draw a line somewhere. Right. And it, it seems super important for certain people to draw that line. And for some people they, they enjoy and they get to enjoy a relationship with Andrew or a deeper relationship when they don't draw that line or when they ignore that line or when they deliberately allow both themselves, Andrew and Andrew to cross that line. But that obviously Um, presents other complications, right? Indeed. Yeah. I want to talk about the three laws of robotics because those are also going to come up a lot in this movie, both in how this script, I would say in certain places follows those laws and certain places where I feel like it violates them. And I want to talk about those to see if I'm just wrong about how I perceive totally. So the first law of robotics, actually, before we get into the laws themselves, Alyssa, did it, did it stand out to you or, or does it stick out in your memory the way that these were presented to us in the movie? Cause it was quite the presentation. Oh, you mean in terms of like, like, like holographically? 
Mm-hmm. With like the Philip Sousa March playing. so funny. Because I was, as I was watching it, I was like, this really, honestly, it's one of the things that both dates the movie and also doesn't because it is, it seems like it's being presented as like, oh, you know, holograms are advanced technology, right? And mm-hmm. that's true. And in, and in that way, it's a little bit like, uncreative right like it feels like a dated idea of what future technology is that being said we're still trying to master holograms in like a practical way um yeah so a lot of developments in ar really um so i find that kind of interesting yeah a- a- augmented reality seems to be like the next step the current next step in reaching hol- uh, holograms or uh, maybe talking to each other through the sort of FaceTime technology they have in Star Wars where like R2-D2 can project your whole entire 3D image into a room. I think we are definitely heading straight into that direction. And what, so this is an interesting thing that we, we talk about in a lot of episodes of this podcast. There are ways that movie sci-fi technology influences real world technology that we develop and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we we kind of hinted about like the iPad for one thing. But one thing that, that kind of stood out to me was Andrew at one point reads a book in order to learn woodworking. Mm-hmm. But he is a computer. He he has yep. a hard drive. <laughs> yep. And I'm sure that if that we have that level of technology at this point in the not too distant future, we could build some sort of PDF or thumb drive or some sort of device that we could plug into his brain to upload this information, right? It must be a more efficient way than him churning page by page through a textbook, scanning well, each page with his eyes. When you think of it from a consumer perspective, is it, wouldn't there be programs you could request to be pre-programmed into the robot before it arrives at your house, right? Yeah, definitely. So you should, and that's not that to should say be modular, that you would right? Program woodworking into the robot if you don't intend it to woodwork, but like, it's never. It's not even really touched on that right. there would be considerations of like consumer modifications. Yeah, one would presume that it would be upgradable or modular, that you, you could modify it however you want to. But that doesn't seem to be the case because Ma'am Martin, Ma'am Martin, when mm-hmm. he makes his first woodcraft horse, asks him, did you design this yourself? And she says something like, no, you must have plotted it out. You, you must have used the computer to plot it out. And I'm like, he is a computer. I... I was Use like, what is she yeah. talking about? Also, you can just like look at a picture of a horse. Like this isn't like, yeah. <laughs> like it, it just seemed very, yeah, it was definitely a strange question of like, mm-hmm. but I guess that's the, that's one of the reasons that the movie feels so dated. Is it because in 1999, Google didn't exist. The idea of like being able to access information quickly and like effectively on the internet was like only like very new. And even then hadn't really like, was not the obvious and basic thing that we know now. Um, mm-hmm. So like looking up a horse on the internet was like not, you know, who was thinking that in 1999, unless you were, you know, like a horse breeder. <laughs> but that's but even a different thing. I, I just find the idea of of them assuming that this being that has a computer in its brain would sit down at a desk with a computer and start like typing and using the computer to to do what its brain can already do. Yes. It's like it's like using a crane to lift another crane to use that to operate that crane arm to pick something up when you could just totally. pick it up with the first crane arm. Well, and actually this goes into when, you know, when Sir realizes that Andrew 
can learn in a more mm-hmm. like organic way. They he teaches him. He doesn't program him to learn things. He says, "Okay, we're going to start doing lessons." And yes. that's also really interesting. Yeah, we see two of those lessons. We see a lesson in sex and a lesson in humor. Which and is quite funny. Don't get me wrong, like it's it is funny that that they gave the robot a sex talk, but like why? Why was this the thing? That you were like, oh, well, he really needs to know about human sexuality. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. It seemed to be like we were just catching the tail end of what Sam Neill calls out the literal discussion of the facts of life. Those are the facts of life. Right. So human I can imagine that they, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I said the human condition. The human condition. Yeah, I can imagine that they were previously talking, or they let, what led up to this conversation or this part of the conversation was probably about questions of death, birth, how are humans born? How do they, you know, what, what how do new humans come into being? Because those are well, things that, that you actually that wouldn't understand at this point. And I could see it just leading to this place where the movie lets us cut in right before they say the word that would make it PG-13 rather than PG. <laughs> and they just sort of talk around it after the fact. So we, we get the sense it's already been mentioned. Now it's just, we're talking about the implication of it. And so circling back real quick, just to the, the laws of robotics, an interesting thing about when Andrew is doing that whole presentation with like the marching band music, the big brass and drums, mm-hmm. it's very like USO. I imagine, and it's, it kind of terrifies some of the uh, family members. Yeah. And Sam Neill immediately afterwards kind of smiles his wry Sam Neill smile and is like, don't ever do that again. Just very matter of factly. And it's it's a little bit intimidating. It's a little bit aggressive, the whole thing. It feels like this big like USO presentation, like he's a combat bot or or he was maybe could have potentially been designed for that. Mm-hmm. And once you see his potential for that, I, I can imagine like that's when it becomes a little bit unnerving to have this thing living in your home with you, right? Yeah. It's also one of the ways that I would argue this movie is part of the MCU and that Andrew is in fact Captain America. We're going to we're going to come back to that. I'm going to put a pin in that. Um. <laughs> wow, all right. I can't wait to hear all about that. <laughs> so, uh, the first law of robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction cause a human being to come to harm. Any any thoughts on that? I think that it's I mean, I, I, in general, for all of these, these are laws created by humans for, the, for their servants and protectors, I guess. I, I tend to think of them relatively neutrally because application is really where that nuance comes in mm. uh, versus like the literal phrasing because they're pretty broad. They are deliberately, yeah. Mm-hmm. Second one, a robot must obey all human orders, except where those orders come in conflict with the first law. So this is a, I love the progression of these laws. I love that there's three of them and that they're in a specific order because that's what gives them this really interesting structural web where it's like you said, Mm -hmm. they're not super specific because they don't need to be because the order of them allows them to be interpreted in ways that, still make it impossible. It's like an order of operations, um, which is literally something that you do in coding and programming, like a if this, then that, but if this instead, then that, so. Although this is interesting because honestly, it's like, I feel like it's so helpful to take them, like that's the thing, they, they don't really 
make sense without each other. You require all Mm -hmm. three in context. But it's also really interesting, especially considering humans made this up, that the first rule would be that robots can't hurt human beings because Mm -hmm. we use robots to hurt each other all the time. And we had when this movie came out, (laughs) like that wasn't new. Um, But in terms of the second law, any human can command any robot. What about the one that I bought? Like, I don't want other people being able to command my robot. Like, that's not the point. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, with each law, if we just have the first one, it's a very different society. Like, we could get by with just the first law. We could have robots, and they will protect us, but they'll only protect those of us that have them. Uh, they won't right. protect all of us. Right. The second law makes sure they will protect all of us, even from ourselves. They will protect us from exploiting them, to harm other humans. And then the third law is what protects them. So a robot, the third law of robotics, a robot must protect itself so long as doing so does not conflict with the first two laws. This is the first law in this movie that we see violated explicitly. Grace orders Andrew to jump and he, and he follows her command and he starts jumping in place. And then she says, no, out the window. And he takes a moment to look at the height. He can very clearly, in my mind, (laughs) based on everything we've seen of the robot so far and everything we see of it later, I I think the movie has proven, their script has proven, he can calculate the distance and know this will harm him. So why does does he jump, Alyssa? Why why does he follow this order? I, it it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Truthfully, it doesn't make sense. The only thing that I can say is that he thought that it wouldn't, incapacitate him. He thought the harm that I would sustain is not going to take me totally out of commission. Therefore I can do it and repair myself with like minimal issue because apparently he can self repair to a point and he gets Mm -hmm. pretty messed up. The fact that, you know, he can just do that autonomously is really interesting. It's, it's also, it's an interesting point of transformation in the movie. So Mm. prior to that, directly following him performing the three laws of robotics with all the fanfare, that's when Sir marches him down downstairs into the basement where he's going to be living and sleeping or not sleeping, but but standing by while the rest of the family sleeps. And he explains one only requires access to a power outlet, but he also offers uh, because he 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 has seen the family's reaction to this presentation. And I I feel like he's a little bit sensitive to that. And he offers to Sir that he could switch to a configuration with a personality if he wants to. And he feels like Andrew seems to be offering that because he feels like this will solve this problem of me being awkward and weird and everyone being scared of me. And Sam Neill immediately, Sir, immediately turns it down, shuts that down. (laughs) I says no. But then Andrew gets damaged, repairs himself, and that's when we start to really see personality quirks. Do you feel like the damage is what caused him to start having a personality quirk or was it was there something else that that was the I catalyst? I think I don't think that the damage is I think that I think that the jumping out the window thing is meant to illustrate his robotness or or it helps to illustrate his robotness and deference and lack of self-preservation. I think that he is intended and obviously this is just my opinion. I'm only going by what I've seen, but I think that he is intended to be 
an anomaly. I think he has intended, humans are organic, right? We're accidents of, I mean, whether or not you think you're an accident, I don't necessarily think humans are accidents, but like an accident of nature in the sense that we didn't engineer ourselves. Um, A random combination of DNA. Right, precisely. Robots aren't an accident of nature, Mm -hmm. but Andrew is. Because he wasn't programmed to be that way, but whatever unintentional combination of things happened inside of him made him different in the same way that a human is made different through accidents of nature. So he's different from robots in the sense that he is an accident of nature. That's such a good point because Oliver Platt brings that up later when he's making robot faces and, and when he's making the human human appearance. I'm sorry, I said that sentence out of order. Uh, when he's making faces for robots that have a more human appearance. And he points out that the key to it is to give them scars and imperfections, imperfect teeth, mm-hmm. imperfect noses. So scars are, are, are an interesting aspect of that because that's what Andrew has after falling out the window. He has a scar mm-hmm. now and he had to heal over that scar but in certain ways that that might have might have damaged part of him but also made him stronger or made him who he is is the most it true. It certainly thing taught him about. a lesson. Yes. I mean, I'll tell you what, the coming back to that moment when he I can't remember who Grace said it, but he was basically well, yes, I know that Grace but like I think maybe Sam Neill says it where he's like she tried to try to kill Andrew and yeah. Halle Kate Eisenberg goes you too to Andrew and you're like what holy shit like this little like <laughs> like sociopath child tried to murder her younger sister and like we're not gonna like touch on that <laughs> not at all yeah that it's definitely that very it, unfunny it's that moment <laughs> from oh man what's that western Coen Brothers western and James Franco is like oh it's a noose uh, around his neck and he's like first time Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Ballad of Buster the Scruggs. Of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But yeah, that everyone's seen that meme of James Franco with a noose around his neck. Right, right. He's looking at the next guy, like, first time. But yeah, yeah, what a little sociopath. And that is the same conversation where, where Sir is explaining Andrew is not a person. He is a form of property. And yes. oof, that's, that's oof. dodgy language there. Holy moly. I was like... Okay, so we're just going to like outright call him property. Well, it's like, I mean, obviously that's a a conversation that is very relevant to 2020 Mm -hmm. in terms of the idea of humans being murdered versus the destruction of property and people thinking that the destruction of property is a more urgent concern than the murder of human beings. Precisely. Which is an interesting interplay with the way that human life is more valuable in the bicentennial man universe but obviously you know property is still valuable but humanity is more desirable obviously like over the course of the movie absolutely that is something that tends to come up in a lot of these conversations with sci-fi is this and i think it's something in movies in general it's not just sci-fi but but this idea that that property is is more valuable than human lives lives this came up in jaws jaws Mm. The mayor is way more upset that somebody painted a girl getting eaten by a shark on the billboard for the ta- for the for Amity than he is about somebody one of his citizens getting ravaged and killed by sharks and the and the potential danger of more of his citizens getting murdered. He's more upset about the potential loss of income and the property damage to the billboard than he is about actual human lives. 
And that's not the only instance of it in Jaws, but it's just one very well-known one, I think. This is also, I think it's it's kind of interesting, Sir, Sir, Sir changes his mind in some ways later on, but in some ways he kind of doesn't either. Totally. Which is a little shocking, which we're going to, we're going to get to, but his, the first time he really defends Andrew, uh, Sir really defends Andrew is against his sociopathic daughter, Grace, um, (laughs) after she tried to murder him. And he makes that Mm -hmm. clear. You tried to murder. This is murder now. Um, I'm defining it that way. He takes him into Northam Robotics and they meet Stephen Root. They meet Dennis Mansky. It's, this is such an interesting character because like I said, he builds robots or designs them or is in charge of the production of them, but he has direct open contempt for them. And I don't know what happened to him to make him this way. Maybe he started out as an idealist, as an optimist, maybe some accident or some tragedy in his past, like an iRobot happened to him and now he hates them. But either way, I wrote this whole thing down because he said, (laughs) Sam Neill literally brings Andrew in to see his reaction to it. He tells him that, I wanted to see a reaction to this unique creature. And Stephen Root's reaction is, he, it, has a human form. Therefore, you read mechanical failure as eccentricity and anthropomorphize it. It is a household appliance and yet you act like it is man. So, yeah, why, why do you think he's so hostile towards it? Well, in, as a viewer, I think just to, to make very clear that this world is trying to draw that firm line between machine and man, um, in terms of him as a character, I think that it's maybe it's just that sort of cynical detachment from your product, which is which is kind of fascinating. Again, it's another thing that translates very differently in 1999 than in 2020. We're in an age of Siri and Alexa, right? And these things are supposed to be, we're supposed to engage with them, not necessarily to think they're human, but we're supposed to like accept them as sort of like fixtures in our homes that like we can like interact with and, and think will solve a lot of our problems. I don't know. I guess it's it's interesting that like this guy would be so hostile because it doesn't really make sense. Maybe he's just an asshole. Like really, like he's yeah. just kind of a jerk. Oh no. Well, I mean, I guess also it kind of indicates that maybe he only took this meeting because Sam Neill is just a rich person with connections because like, how did he get this meeting <laughs> with mm-hmm. this guy? Like, it's just like, oh, okay. Like I'm going to have to do this because maybe he's own stock or something. We have to talk with him about like what he, like his special robot that he thinks is so special. And now I need to like make clear that this is not a special robot. It's just broken. Yeah, I was probably giving him too much credit by assuming like something happened to him. It's also very, very possible and much probably more likely that he is the kind of person that just his idea of building robots is I'm literally building servants. We can't ethically have slaves. Um, we we have right. we are way past yes. that point in human history. Totally. However, we can build machines that will do things for us. And what and if we add legs and arms and a head and a mouth and eyes to it, it's still a machine from my point of view. Uh, sorry, that's not me saying that. I do not view it that way. No, of course, <laughs> no. But that's a really does not view it that way. you but, know obviously the the idea of slavery, it, even though it's not outright said in the movie, mm-hmm. it's very much you know, it's very implied, like there's property. Like, yeah, as pro- like this humanoid creature as property is and like, and obviously, as Andrew develops over time, the question of his, his nature emerges, and it becomes obviously less and less, less ethical 
to treat him the way that they have been treating him. And I think that's part of the way that Sam Neill is. That's why Sam, Sam Neill changes, I think, over the course of his aspect of the movie. Um, yes. But I will say, and we can touch on this a little later, but I actually think, you know, it's easy to say Lloyd is an asshole in the same way that Dennis Mansky is an asshole. Like, oh, they just are jerks who think robots are property or whatever. But I actually think Lloyd has a totally different reason for hating Andrew. Ooh, I'm, I'm excited to get to that. We're, we're there, I have a lot to say about Lloyd, so we'll definitely get to that. So I'm excited. Great. <laughs> yes, this is the, the scene is the first time that we, uh, maybe not the first time, but it is the first time I noticed Sam Neill or anybody using the word unique to describe Andrew. And and this, mm-hmm. this word starts coming up a lot. And Andrew sort of adopts it into his vocabulary and uses it in his defense in a lot of ways. This is about 37 minutes into the movie and it's our first big time jump. We go forward 20 years from this from this scene, not directly from this scene, but we get to, we're just sort of caught up 20, about 20 years later. I wrote down 20 just based on how much older Little Miss and Grace were, but I, I, I don't know if I'm accurate. It actually that. might have been, I wanna say like 11 years, or no, no, maybe like 15. Okay, but Little Miss is getting married and she asks Andrew to her wedding. And his big thing that he's super excited about is he gets to wear a tuxedo. And he says, no one, he's never been asked to wear clothes before. And I cannot think of another movie where a robot expresses a, a wish to wear clothing. Or I'm sure that there are examples I'm not thinking of, but can you think of any? Um, I didn't think about robots when I was listening to it. I thought about Dobby the house because giving clothes to him is giving him his freedom that's such a good point that was very much what i thought of and dobby is literally a servant right that's his yeah that's his slave role and giving him clothes frees him oh wow that's oh man (laughs) and actually i think that you're i mean you're i you jumped over i think another very significant moment in that conversation oh, oh where we're starting to understand that, I mean, after all this time and presumably further development of Andrew's personality, Little Miss is in love with him or like thinks that she might be in love with him and obviously understands that especially the way he is as like a literal, like physical robot or at least appearing as a robot um, that can't necessarily work uh, on many levels. But that's the first introduction of humanity. He's not just relating to humans. Humans are relating back to him and accepting yes. his the aspects of his humanity that exist. And that's a question that uh, artificial intelligence is also asking. The, the Very literally at the beginning of the movie, they're asking, is this child robot that we're designing, we're less concerned, is it capable of love? We're more concerned, is it capable of being loved by humans? And... Mm-hmm. The answer really is only only some only some yeah, will choose to some. love it. Well, um, and also and the, only some will choose. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, in the in the context of the movie, yes, obviously there are some humans who can love Andrew completely as he is. Although I think that there are some caveats there. I mm. think re- that really can only happen after he can be completely perceived as human, like physically, just like at first glance. I think that's really the only way that that, that line gets completely crossed. Yeah. Um, but when I think about our world and the way we interact with robots all the time, like obviously we're very addicted to our robots, but we don't, and we, and we, we love them in the sense that we don't want anything bad to happen to them and we want to take care of them to a point so that 
they continue to serve us and they continue to function for us. But we've also accepted that when, when the contract is up, you trade in for a new one. Oh yeah. When the newer, cooler robot comes out, you Precisely. discard the old one or you trade, you trade it in for the newer, cooler one. Yep. And that's, that's the future that, that Dennis Mansky is absolutely trying to create. And he assumes that's what people are always going to want. It's not only a waste of time to upgrade this unit or to treat it as unique or to not mess with its neural pathways when we're repairing it. It's offensive to him because it's not his vision and it Which contradicts so his vision. Because something that I actually felt was very much missing, and again, I understand you can't necessarily talk about this in a PG movie, but something that's totally missing from this landscape is what would obviously be robots built for sex. Oh, yeah. AI obviously. goes into that, yeah. <laughs> right. Isn't Julan, isn't he like a... Gigolo Joe. Gigolo yeah. Joe, what do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I Women feel ask like for him by name. Pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is very beautiful. So mm-hmm. I get that. Um, but yeah, so I that was something that like feels very... Like, you're right. I think you were right to use the word sterile. Because this is a very, this is also a very romantic movie. It very much plays up the romantic aspects of humanity and the way that humans engage with each other on on a more profound level. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where other humans are like, oh shit, like I've not engaged with that profound part of myself in the way that Andrew, a new human, to a point, does. Like partly out of like envy and distance. Yes, envy. That's part of our fear of robots. This gets brought up much later about how Andrew's immortality makes us feel and how it makes us uneasy. That was so weird, wasn't it? Because I felt that was so odd. It, it, if that's our concern, I mean, I don't know. I felt like that was a strange legal argument. Like, well, it's part of envy. Too, too afraid or like, too, or too envious of your immortality mortality therefore we can't call you a human it's like that doesn't make him any less able to live forever and also we don't know effectively how being labeled a robot versus a human limits him apart from not being able to get married Mm -hmm. otherwise i mean i he can have a bank account he has a home although the zoning is a little bit (laughs) risky considering that home but who knows maybe it's a private beach that's I had so right. so many questions about the legality yeah, of him so building there, a there house on the beach. There are definitely legal elements here. Well, and also I had the same questions. So I, I mean, I negotiate contracts for my job. So this was like something that was very much going through my mind as I was watching, um, of like the warranty of uh, and like the the legalities of buying and owning this robot. Like okay. I was very much like I wondered what that like ownership contract looked like. So I'm going to keep connecting this movie to AI, and I apologize to anybody that's listening to this episode that hasn't seen that movie, but that is actually something that's addressed in artificial intelligence. Um, later, when David finds all of the boxes of, of replicas of himself that are about to be shipped out to everybody for the market, they say on the box, five-year warranty, which is very interesting because he lives for more than 2,000 years after that point without anybody maintaining him other than himself. So I don't know what the warranty would be on an NDR unit in this movie, but he, David, I'm not, da- not David, uh, <laughs> Andrew lasts 200 years. And the only reason he starts to break down is when he chooses to. He chooses to. Mm-hmm. Right. So the immortality is like definitely something that makes us uncomfortable. The fact that a robot can, 
continue to exist beyond us. And that's part of, I think, what Stephen Root is also afraid of. I built these things so that we would be completely in control of them. If we're not repairing its neural pathways once it starts showing uniqueness, which I perceive as an anomaly, then therefore they are out of my control. We no longer control them. And once we don't control them, the fear starts to become, are they still following the three laws of robotics or have they decided not to? You know, if we let them become human, we made them stronger than us. We made them Mm -hmm. to outlast us. Will they accelerate our demise once we give them the freedom to? I think that's the big fear that we're worried about with giving robots autonomy. I understand that completely in a theoretical sense, but I do think that is very hard to juxtapose against the reality of the film, which is that Andrew is alone. Mm. So there is no, like not, no, and like no other NDRs have this accident of nature that has made Andrew a unique creature that has humanity. It feels a little interesting to me to have that envy, like that that idea of like, well, humans would be too too jealous of you living forever. Therefore we can't bestow humanity on you. He's just this one, one creature, like this one thing that like, honestly, like if you really, really felt like someone could kill him, but they could kill him whether or not. It's like you just, it just gets prosecuted differently. Uh, I guess it's a destruction of property versus, but at that point he's free, right? Like or, no, he doesn't have an owner except himself. They could order another robot to kill him because robots can harm other robots in the movie. We're going to talk right. a lot about Galatea when we get there because <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about Galatea and the movie's treatment of her, Andrew's treatment of her, and Oliver Platt's treatment of her. Um, totally. Before that though, Andrew, I, oh God, this was, Alyssa, this was the first moment in the movie that made me cry. (laughs) Andrew. No, it's a good thing. It was a cathartic. No, I love Um, it. I love this. I cried multiple times also. Andrew says this is the first time that he wants to get upgraded. Prior to this, there's this moment when we keep coming back to Dennis Mansky in this, this first conversation. Sam Neill is trying to justify Andrew's uniqueness by saying he he said that I enjoy making the wood carvings that he makes and I underline the word enjoy because we think about like can a robot love we think about concepts of like what would a robot wish for maybe but what can a robot robot enjoy yeah and what does Mm -hmm. that mean when he uses that word and so later when he's trying to get his facial expressions upgraded his argument is one wishes to have more expression. One has thoughts and feelings that presently do not show. And this is where Stephen Root's response to that is, there's a growing concern robots will make the human workforce obsolete. He, he articulates mm-hmm. that fear that we have. But just, just the idea of, I, I want to be careful how I bring this, how I broach this topic, but just the idea of somebody being sort of trapped in their own mind or trapped in their own body in a way that, they have thoughts, they have feelings that they, they feel like they are physically limited from expressing. And, and, and actually, like crying is one of those for a lot of people, I think. Literally, it is for Andrew. He wants to cry. He wants to express sadness or loss or grief, mm-hmm. but he knows that he can't. And that's, at this point in the movie, that's his greatest tragedy, is that he is feeling these emotions inside, but can't let anyone know as badly as he wants to. I mean, I wrote, I wrote this down a little bit later for like a little bit later in the movie as I was watching, but I really think that 
in a modern reading. I mean, even back then, even back then, Bicentennial Man is a trans story. Ooh, okay. I was going to go in a different direction, but let's unpack this because I think it's I think it's I think also it, related to where I was going. But yeah, I yeah. want to hear more thoughts on that because it's all about wanting him wanting to make his outsides match his insides, right? He mm-hmm. wants to. I mean, it, it, going from the concept of expression, even just in terms of facial expressions, wanting to convey your feelings and your thoughts, and, and but not only to convey them, but to have them be perceived and accepted by others. When we express things to other people, we are, we're expressing them, but also we're trying to convey them in a way that can be perceived and understood and accepted by other people. Yeah. When we see someone crying, we have empathy. Yeah. Because we accept that there is a reason that the tears are happening and we want to, I mean, we want to know, or like Mm -hmm. we want to relate in some way. And so I think that that's like a, obviously like a, him using facial expressions is only one aspect of that. But then obviously as the movie goes on to want to look more human, to reflect that humanity that's innately within him. That's to want to be able to cry, to decay, to deteriorate. Yeah. To be, to be perceived and accepted as human on the outside, as well as on the inside, I think is a very direct parallel to wanting to be perceived as the gender, you know, you are. Yeah. Right. Like whether or not that's directly, you know, I was assigned male at birth and now want to totally, like totally surgically change, totally pass. And obviously not everybody wants or needs to do that. Regardless, even if you don't necessarily identify with the binary and want to can like express your gender in a way that is different, you still want to be perceived and accepted through expressing yourself in, in fashion or in makeup or in whatever kind of like mannerism that you want to do. Um, Yeah, this is an interesting concept that I think sci-fi is a good lens to explore it through. And I think a lot of storytellers choose to to use a sci-fi parallel to bring up this topic or to express, maybe even express themselves through it. Again, this is something I want to be delicate talking about, but the Wachowskis, when the the, the Matrix, the first Matrix movie, I don't think I need to announce spoilers for that. That's a movie everyone's seen, but uh, especially if you're listening to this, to this podcast. So in the Matrix, there's a character named Switch. And the original version of the character in the script was somebody that in the organic world is one gender. I I don't remember if they're originally male or female, but when they go into the matrix, their avatar is the opposite gender. And it's Mm -hmm. a deliberate thing because that character was written to be non-binary. And this was at a time when the Wachowskis were still presenting themselves as the Wachowski brothers, but now Mm -hmm. that is no longer the case. And so I think it's very fascinating that they, they put that character into the movie. In the final version in the movie that we see, uh, the character is played by an actress and there, I don't think there's really any mention of their gender one way or another, but I, I think it would have been interesting if that aspect of the script made it in where they were, when they go into the matrix, their avatar changes. The only aspect of that that did make it was the name of the character, which is Switch. I definitely think Andrew could very well be a parallel for this. It's, it's such an interesting point that you bring up and I didn't think of it in that regard, but the more you talk about it, the more it makes sense. He wants to wear clothing, he wants to be able to cry, he wants to just, he wants other people to see him the way he sees himself. And exactly. it's, it, when you break it down to just He wants to, to participate that, in mm-hmm. humanity without having yeah. to be barred from that in any way. 
participate is such a, a great way to put it. Another re- a reason I think participate is such a good word is the direction I was thinking in this was, again, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I want I just want to preface everything I'm about to say <laughs> with, with, I'm not qualified to talk about people on the spectrum or anything like that. I'm not a doctor, but I definitely do know people who are, and I definitely have read a lot of literature about it. And, and I try to pay attention and be compassionate and understanding. So I got the sense that this is a similar experience to somebody that, because of whatever reasons, has trouble expressing emotions, has trouble expressing part of their humanity that they are inside desperately wanting to participate in and be perceived as, you know, just the same way everybody else perceives each other. But they they can't, and in a lot of cases are unable to even acknowledge that they can't. Andrew is able to acknowledge that he can't. And that's that's what makes it really, really tragic is that he's he's literally trapped. It is. He's an intelligent so mind trapped <laughs> in this limited form. Mm. <laughs> so. So that was one, the first time you cried. <laughs> that was the first time I tried I cried. I'm I can't remember the next one, but I'm sure that I wrote it down. The the next note that I have is because we do see Andrew at Little Miss's wedding. And mm-hmm. I not only love the, the the vests that he and Sir are wearing, they're fantastic, the floral vests, but also the dress that Grace wears is amazing. Mm. It has oh, this totally. like inflatable collar kind of thing. It's such cool future fashion. God and it's like bless. this bright yellow at a yes. wedding. Yes. Oh, it's um, totally gaudy and tacky and ridiculous, just like she is. Yep. Well, and actually, tell you what, <laughs> that's a kind of a funny incidental parallel to a more modern time they weirdly they do seem to live at home until they're like 30 and then get married <laughs> they seem to be living at home right but i think that sort of digs down into what you were saying before about generational wealth and inheritance this seems mm-hmm. to be a family that that i feel like this house is just part it's the family home the whole family right. will live in this home the estate together it's the estate we'll have mm-hmm. separate areas apartments like rooms all of that but we will stay together. And when I, when this generation dies, the next generation will inherit it, which might be the answer to how Andrew is legally able to build a house on the beach. It must be that beach is, is part of their property, right? They own that beach. And we don't see this conversation, but we do see, we do see Andrew petitioning for his freedom from Sir. And that's when he is told to, or he's told to leave essentially. And, and he determines or he de- he uh, decides he's going to either find a place nearby or ultimately what he ends up doing build a place nearby <gasps> could it be the giant pink dress <gasps> you didn't like what you didn't like a jimbo outfit how dare you i know hi i'm me john and i'm nick i like to call myself a semi drag race expert and i've never seen it before so join us on our podcast, Whispering Hunties, every week for drag race expertise. And the exact opposite of that. Either way, it's a geeky. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, grrr. okay. Get How out. could I possibly? Take your cute cats that keep walking <laughs> all over you and making know. me wish that I had a My pet. sweet little and debris. Get, get out of this podcast. I need a door slam like <laughs> right now as I throw you out of the house. <laughs> Thank you. 
this is actually, this is 12 years, this is another time jump in the movie. It's 12 years after the wedding. It actually starts with our introduction to Lloyd because Lloyd is uh, digging up sand on this speech that's been familiar from the beginning of the movie. It's where he has collected wood for his carvings. It's where, you know, he spent a lot of time with Little Miss. On this beach, Lloyd is digging up some sand and just dumps it right on him and <laughs> gets yelled at. And he says, I won't apologize to it. And this little kid actor really underlined the word nailed it, it. in that nailed sense. It. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote down, Lloyd can go jump straight into the ocean. Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, the way that I perceived this, and I actually didn't really think of it until after I finished the movie and mm -hmm. was thinking more about that. But for me, so because, so the the man that Frank, who is who uh, Little Miss, whose actual real name is Amanda, who Little Miss married mm. a guy named Frank, and then they had Lloyd. Yeah. And his sister. But Frank is not on the beach with them. And you learn later on that they're divorced, right? But now they've got the, like, now Lloyd has this essential, like, stepdad who is Andrew. What small kid doesn't resent this unwanted father figure that's not their dad? Um, that's a good point. And being forced to treat as a human and as a part of the family. So that was kind of my takeaway of, like, oh, he just hates. I mean, and it's like, not only is this someone that, you know, I don't want my mom to like find another husband. Like I want that my parents to be together, but also this person isn't even a person. Why would she choose to spend time with this robot over being with my dad? That's so poignant. We don't see the scene where it happens, but it, but Andrew is definitely the thing that drove a wedge between Little Miss, between Amanda and Frank, for sure. It's implied very heavily throughout the movie. And yeah, we don't need to see it. So that's such a great extrapolation that, that that's what that explains why Lloyd has so much open hostility and resentment towards Andrew from the jump. I didn't think of it that way. And it's partly it's it's largely because Bradley Whitford is so good at playing this character oh my later gosh. on. He's great. And when you cast Bradley Whitford, like, you know that you're going to, part of you is going to hate the dude. And <laughs> This was accurate. <laughs> and so, yeah, Lloyd can still go jump straight into the ocean, but I, I oh, yeah, I'm, 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 don't get me wrong. I have a little more compassion for him now that you said that, that I'm really glad that, that we talked about Lloyd because I have a little yeah. more understanding of Lloyd now. He's human. He's flawed. Um, Absolutely. And from his perspective, he's the victim. And I totally get that. I totally get why he would see it the way that he sees it. It's just, it's, it's tragic that he carries that resentment into adulthood and can never, ever get over it. He can't get past yes. it. That's the real, Precisely. that's the sad part of Lloyd. This 12-year time jump is when Andrew goes to try to obtain his freedom. He wants to be declared free. After trying to buy his freedom from Sir and Sir denying his money, saying, I don't, I don't want your money for this, but he still also didn't want him to do it because he vague, very vaguely said there would be consequences to it, but he didn't really specify. Were, were those going to be consequences for himself, sir? Or were the, those consequences for Andrew? And what was his concern? Why didn't he want him to have, to have freedom? I see it a couple of ways. I think that there, it's the, the perception of Andrew as, I mean, as a member of the family in the sense of like, a father protecting a child that has never been out in the world alone, but also the lingering prejudice of purchasing this initially as an appliance. Mm -hmm. And then over time, having that initial impression 
compromised. But it's like, you know, he's an old man. Like he's an old white man who like, whose point of view and whose decisions effectively are being challenged, right? Like no matter how much time has passed, he still made the decision to not only buy this robot, but then to, to humanize it. And like, it's like, I mean, I guess it, it is a parallel, I guess, to raising children in a way where it's like, eventually your child is going to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, and you have to accept that you have, you have prepared this child to leave if you've done it right. I, but you know what? This goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. He, he hasn't really prepared his own two children to leave the house, right? That is He's true. only prepared them There's to always live in there, that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe and a little a, bit, but. and with Andrew not always being considered a him, that sexism sort of spills over a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and this is also a, a very poignant part of the movie because right after he tries and fails to to buy his freedom from Sir, which I would argue he obtains his freedom after trying and failing to buy it, he still obtains it. He says, "I will go try to find a place nearby so I can always be nearby." And Sir points out, that's the first time you didn't refer to yourself as one. It's the first time he refers to himself as I. We then get another big time jump, which is 16 more years. 16 years later, Sir is dying. Grace is still rude when <laughs> when Andrew walks in to... So actually, the, the way that we get into this scene is Andrew has built his home on the beach and Little Miss comes to, to get him and says, it's time. And he shows up, and, and as soon as he enters the room, Grace is like, the robot is here, very snidely. Well, and not only that, uh, Little Miss says, he asked for you. Yeah, yeah. So and it's Grace not is just, re- he's dying, it's he asked for you directly. Yeah, and Grace is definitely resentful of that. And this is when, I guess, Sam Neill's character sort of gives himself a pass for how he treated Andrew. He sort of forgives himself. He admits that he was wrong, and uh, he apologizes to him, but like... It's it's still it, it is the moment when he denies him his freedom or makes an, makes it an obst- another obstacle in front of his freedom is very surprising and disappointing for all of the reasons yes. that you said. But I guess Absolutely. it also makes sense the way you described it that like he's an old white man he's stuck in these in his way of thinking. Well, it's also um, implied I don't feel bad that they for haven't that. spoken in the sixteen years that have mm-hmm. intervened, which is like quite a decision right? right to like completely detach yourself from this person i mean from this person you've made a person yeah he he spent nights with it giving it lessons in humanity and he went to the the factory where it was built to petition for it to to preserve its personality and its life and its mind and now when it's asking for his own freedom it's so weird that he just says no. I guess I, I can't, I shouldn't use the word weird because it does make sense the way you said it. It's just unfortunate. It's disappointing. Right. It's um, disappointing. And it's, yeah. it's definitely, we expect differently and we're, and our expectations are disappointed, not only because that's not the way he has set, set up the narrative to go, if you will, like in terms of making these decisions to humanize Andrew and to like encourage the humanity in him. Also, it's like, as the, as the audience, we're like, you know, this is not right. Like this isn't like mm. we, we as the audience are like, this is the wrong thing to do. We, like it's wrong. You should give him his freedom because you, you don't want to acknowledge that you have made a human for whatever reason, yeah. but like you did and you know that, but if you say that out loud, then you'll be responsible so I guess it's easier to not take responsibility and just be like, well, this is your decision. 
if you make that decision, you can't come back here. And one way or another, that rejection forces, forces Andrew to grow. It forces him to find his own way, to build his own home, and to be okay with being solitary. Um, but to be independent, to be independent in a way that he hasn't had to be because now there's no one relying on him. Mm. And so 16 years later, when Sir dies, Andrew decides he's going to spend as long as it takes to seek out other NDRs like himself. And he ends up spending about 10 years doing that. And we see a couple of instances of the other NDRs that he finds. So the first one is uh, one that has been deleted and dismantled. Um, the next one is the one that's sort of, he like, he's like climbing a snowy mountain and there's this crashed helicopter with the body of the NDR inside and it's non-functional um, and deleted. And then he finds a third one that is drawing lines on a baseball diamond. And when he approaches it and tries to be social with it, uh, it basically tells him like, hey, get back, I'm trying to do my job. And he scans it and it says that it's reprogrammed. So in order, we, we see these three other NDRs that he's found. Mm. One has been, the, the word the word choice here I think is very important because it's from his, his, his sort of scan review, his Terminator vision. We see him scanning them and we see the first one is has been deleted because it was dismantled. The second one has been deleted because it was non-functional. And then the third one has been reprogrammed. So I think there's some nuance between the one that was dismantled and the one deemed non-functional. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that or did anything about the two stick out to you? Um, I mean, I think it's just, it's circumstantial. Like one was, one was intentionally scrapped and one crashed and was deemed a sacrifice not worth uh, repossessing from that mountainside, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess. But in terms of reprogramming, now you're bringing up an interesting idea that maybe that NDR used to be like Andrew, mm -hmm. but got the procedure that Andrew's sir did not allow to happen. Yeah, it's it's a it's a robot that we see for just a moment in the movie, but all of that implied history of it and the fact that that is almost definitely true makes it extremely tragic and extremely kind of terrifying. It's a very painful movie in many ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is when Andrew ends up in San Francisco and we're, we get this very classic Hollywood romantic scene where he sees Galatea from a distance. She's in the market. She's singing. She's got like a button on her leg that she presses she's to play flirty. music and she dances. She's flirty. She's got a big personality, lots of social interaction with other people. And so he follows her in a, what I would say is kind of a creepy way at first, but he follows her to see where she's going. And, and she ends up going to where she works, uh, which is for Oliver Platt, uh, Rupert Burns. Rupert Burns is, is this man's name. I want to hear your thoughts on Rupert Burns before I get into what I think about Rupert Burns. Okay. First of all, and Galatea. Oliver Platt is an absolute gift. He is one of mm -hmm. my favorite parts of this movie. I think he just does an incredible job. I love him so much. Rupert Burns is a fascinating character because he believes in the dignity of robots in a way that nobody else does really, or nobody else has given as much thought or effort to. Um, Not even so. But, right, but he also still has all the limitations of being a human who chooses to own robots as property. And that's very realistic. He wants, I mean, Gal, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Galatea just seems to be like a 
like a companion slash employee. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's like his girlfriend or anything. He relates and like wants an employee that will, he can relate to and like that has personality and like they can joke around and like, but at the end of the day, he still expects Galatea to follow all of his orders and to like not necessarily have input apart from like whatever funny phrases are programmed into her, you know, into her personality ship. Not only that, but Andrew very quickly goes from having doe eyes about her and and like being in love with her from a distance at first sight to openly hating her and being literally violent towards her, which is very shocking. Well, and like he begins unnecessary. to resent <laughs> he begins to resent her in the way that humans resent him. Yeah. Uh, which is depressing, <laughs> which is kind of sad. I mean, Galtea is annoying as fuck. Don't get me wrong. She's very <laughs> irritating and she needs to learn to like, but also, you know, I mean, her, her social function is limited. So mm-hmm. I can appreciate that she doesn't necessarily know how to act around most people in, in various contexts yeah, but, it is in yeah. no way her fault that she has an annoying personality. It's, she, uh, as Jessica Rabbit would say, I'm just drawn that way. I'm not bad. I'm just right. drawn that way. <laughs> she, she I, I mean, she also, I would actually argue she's charming. I can definitely, like, annoying, there's a line between annoying and charming. There's a, a very thin yes. line. And I was I was kind of immediately charmed by Galatea. And I think a lot of that is the movie wanted me to be. The movie framed oh, it totally. in a way. We're seeing it from Andrew's eyes. We're seeing her dance around the market and be cool and fun and singing. And when he catches up to her and talks to her, she has this really funny line. She says, dancing is the sportiest sport. He asks her, um, he's surprised that she can dance. And he says, you can dance. And she says, dancing is the sportiest sport. And we're so much better at it than humans. And that seems to be the first. Yeah. Yeah. Go How how so? Well, it's like, it's like a talking Barbie, right? Like the pre-primed phrases that are like, non-threatening like mm-hmm. just like make her you know she's a fun sociable like sassy character but not very substantive right she makes pop culture references like she sings the you know if i only had a heart later oh my gosh um, i loved that so much because mm-hmm. what a good little nod to not also some some self-awareness right like she yep. knows she's a robot yep but that's the thing she accepts that she's a robot when that actually happens, that's the second time that Andrew is openly hostile and shockingly violent to her. The first, when shortly after the dancing comment, she says, she comes up to him and she says, we're the same. And his response is, shut her off or I will. He just like turns to Oliver Platt and he says that. Instead, not even addressing her, not treating her like a person. He has, he has drawn a very clear line between himself and her almost immediately. And it's... Again, it's kind of disappointing, just like the way Sir's, Sir was disappointing. Later on, when she's singing, Andrew asks Oliver Platt, do you have an impact hammer? And he says, yes. And then we hear this off-screen screaming and like the sound of him attacking her. She ends up being fine later. I, I was really, un- that scene made me pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I laughed. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it's but comedy. It is yeah, comedy it's and it's played for comedy, especially because she's okay afterwards. It's a cartoonish Precisely. violence. Right. Um, because you know she's going to be fine, right? You know she yeah. can be repaired. She accepts her robotness. But the thing about it is that she accepts her robotness, 
but does that make her any less um, deserving of dignity and of being treated with respect? That's right? what made me uncomfortable about it was, was that Andrew is aware that he is literally punching down at that point. He, he, ha- he considers himself arrogantly a higher, more evolved life form than her. And he's, he's attacking her because she, made, she frustrated him because she made him a little bit upset. So it's just like he's literally punching down on something, on a, on a lesser, what he considers a lesser evolved creature or a lower life form, which is kind of like, I mean, not, I, I, I might already have been offensive the way I'm describing Galatea, but like, it's like kicking a puppy. And like, that might also be an offensive way to put it. But I just, I felt bad for her in that way, that it was like, she's kicking, he's kicking a puppy. That's just yeah, trying no, its best. I think best. that's fair. <laughs> yeah, she she is she's fulfilling her function exactly yeah. as she's supposed to. This but is it could, now. it could also reflect mm. just really quick. It could also reflect yeah. his his disappointment. Like he shouldn't be taking it out on her, but his disappointment that she's not like him. Yeah, he's gone on this decade long journey to find yeah. somebody else like him, and well, this like, is the he closest he's that her personality is a chip. Like her, your personality chip is turned on, and she's like, "Yeah, duh, isn't yours?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, "Oh man, that's heartbreaking. That must be really hard to think that you found it, right? And then to not mm. find it, and to find someone who's so content to be, you know, that's also there's envy there too. So content to be a robot and so accepting mm-hmm. of being a robot. And obviously that changes a little bit for Galatea as time goes on. But but again, it's it's because of of an action enacted on her, not because mm-hmm. necessarily of her own." Volition. Yeah, and and he's just not willing to see her as a complete person the way he sees himself as a complete person, and so therefore he's not willing to have that respect for her. It's it's. I think there's a lot of implications with that. Again, stuff that I'm not entirely qualified to comment on. So <laughs> one thing that is a huge transformation in the scene is this is when we see Oliver Platt has this sort of putty substance that he's using to make uh, humanoid skin and give robots. Faces, hair, pliable noses, ears, like different types of body parts. And this is when we get this whole conversation about the key to it, the the key to making them blend in with humans is to make them less than perfect, to make them imperfect, and to give them these these scars, these weird features or uneven features. uh, Oliver Platt points out the unevenness of his nose. And then Andrew responds by pointing out the largeness of his head. And (laughs) what is very important in this scene is after Andrew gets a gets a human skin put over his body, he claims, now I'm an android. So he considers at that point, he went from being a robot to now he's an android because now the way that he sees himself on the inside is expressed on the outside. So he resembles humans. But then he very quickly gets frustrated because Little Miss is dying. And Little Miss is the person that he is the closest to in the entire world, that he has the most affection for, that probably has the most affection for him. And he says it's cruel. He says this to Portia. And I skipped over a huge scene. of Little Miss. Yeah, I skipped over a huge scene where he meets Portia, but we'll we'll go right back to that. When Little Miss is dying, he says, it's cruel that you, Portia, can cry and I cannot. There is a terrible pain I cannot express. And he asks, will every human I care for just leave? She says, yes. And he says, that won't do. And that's that's when we see him, like, that's when we see, like, in his hero's journey, that's when he, his mission is entirely clear to him. But also it's, Another weird moment where he's making he's making Little Miss's death about himself, 
in, in mm-hmm. a huge way. Yeah, um, that's true. So let's let's talk about how he meets Portia though. Let's 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 go into that a little bit. They did a well, very definitely yeah. <laughs> 90s movie thing where he mm-hmm. walks in and it's the same actress, right? So right. Portia's at the at the the piano, she's playing the piano, and he walks in in his now humanoid form with some synthetic skin over it. When he's fully, it's fully Robin Williams now. Full Robin Williams, hundred percent Robin Williams, and not both, in a suit, not both, the puppeteered. Uh, Little Miss and Portia are played by the wonderful Ambits Davis, aka Miss Honey, from the movie. Yes, I from what? The movie Matilda. That's right. I know Ambeth Davids from Army of Darkness. Actually, <laughs> oh yes, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, she's great. And I love her in, in both of these roles. They do the very 90s movie thing where he shows up. Uh, there's a misunderstanding about who he is and who she is. And then the actress in old lady makeup comes down the stairs and they do this thing where a lot of directors in the 90s like to, to, to show off this technology mm-hmm. that, because we had achieved it, where they're both on screen at the same time. They're on each side of him right. having a conversation. And he's like, what, your Portia? Your your little miss what parent trap trap, that's what it is yep that's Mm -hmm. exactly what it is and it's it's a fun scene it's played for comedy I I really liked it I thought it was fun I don't know why I didn't have any notes on it well you also find out that Portia is Lloyd's daughter so she is pretty immediately Mm. wary of Andrew and like she doesn't call him it or anything but she's definitely like you know snotty yeah this is an interesting uh, another like sort of thing that the movie is is progressively showing both sides of throughout the whole, the whole time, uh, through every generation, there are some people on this side of the coin, some people on that side of the coin. So we see an instance of sir has a friend who's a lawyer who, Oh man, what is that actor that plays him? Oh, it's, um, it's, uh, Um, John Michael Higgins. I actually met a few years ago and he is very delightful. Oh, he seems he seems like he's delightful. I mean, that's good to hear. Very, that very he's cool guy. Same way in real life. So he plays. Yeah, John Michael Higgins plays Bill Feingold, uh, Martin's lawyer, Sir's lawyer. He is immediately compassionate to the concerns that are brought up about robot rights. He thinks when when the question is brought to him of should a robot be able to have a bank account, he thinks about it and he's like, yeah, I don't see why not. I'll I'll do the work to try to make this happen. So we see him advocating for this robot, but later we see another character who is also a lawyer, Bradley Whitford, Lloyd, who does not feel the same way. So the movie, what I like about it, it's not saying lawyers all think this way. Lawyers, if you're a lawyer that says something about you to where that we can predict how you will respond to robots or treat them or consider their humanity. We see both sides of it. That kind of brings in another parallel in terms of like social justice and personhood, because obviously not all lawyers feel the same in that way. Like there are people who, I mean, there are lawyers in the Supreme Court who wrote dissents about the ability for gay people to get married, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like on the uh, current on the current Supreme Court, Alyssa. <laughs> yeah, like yes, and there are people that are you know being interviewed yep. for this job that also don't think gay people should be able to get married, and that's just. You know, obviously there are very different perspectives. Not all lawyers think the same way and thank goodness yeah. for that, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's, to some it degree, is interesting yeah. <laughs> that someone is, right, right. But it's interesting that like as time goes on, but it's, it's difficult because it's interesting that the lawyer who is objectively closest to Andrew in terms of spending the most time with and having the closest relationship to 
is the one who doesn't want him to have rights <laughs> mm-hmm. or at least not, not in like a formal sense. Like it's not that he's, you know, I don't even think it, it even comes to that in Lloyd's mind. It does. Because when you we talk about Feingold's approach, his client comes to him and is like, I want this for my family member, mm-hmm. Andrew. And he's like, all right. Like, I mean, I, this is my job on one hand. So like, I'm going to do it, but also like, why not? Like, I'm not going to refuse, like, let's do it. But then you have Lloyd, who is, he is much more, I mean, I guess we're talking about like a lawyer stereotype of like, you know, a little bit like rude and sharky and like, I'm only, I'm going to do what benefits me personally that he, but he's, he doesn't even engage with the idea of Andrew being human and having rights in connection with that because he scoffs also, at it. I mean, Andrew is just a presence that is unwanted. It's not like, I'm sure he doesn't agree with treating him as human, but he still relates to Andrew. Like he talks to him like a person, <laughs> like True. at the end of the day, he, it, I don't know that the, I, the concept of Andrew having right, it's, it's almost like a libertarian perspective in a way where it's like, you can do whatever you want over there. Away yeah, um, Lloyd is not going to be an obstacle to Andrew getting rights, but he's also not going to—he's not, not going to immediately, willingly help him along. He'll help if asked by his family, but well, he's and not. If it, gonna, and if it benefits him in the process, and like if, it benefits if, him. if it makes Andrew go away, that benefits yeah. him. So then, if the, if if Andrew having rights makes Andrew go away, by all means, let's make it happen. Man, that's such a good point. And now that actually makes more sense as to why that was his condition. Because um, I didn't I didn't really catch the whole stepson resentment when I was watching it. So that, that does make perception. a lot of sense. But I, but I think I think that's got to be it. Like that's I can't think of another scenario that's more likely. And it makes so, it really would carry over to that. Like, this is all I want from you. Just go away and I'll do what you need. So. This is around the time we start seeing Andrew falling in love with Portia. And this is part of why Andrew is Captain America, because Captain America had a whole relationship with Peggy Carter, and then he was frozen in time. And (laughs) when he was thought out, he kind of had the start of a relationship with Sharon Carter. uh, Yes, you know, okay. I did think about this a little bit when I was watching the movie, because it is slightly uncomfortable. A little bit, a little bit, just because... It's it's definitely like the budding, his start of him, I think, falling in love with Portia is him learning how to interact with, with Little Miss when she's a child and how he sees her pain and wants to sort of comfort that because he caused her pain by destroying her little glass horse. So, Which, like, like honestly, see- what an asshole. Like, that was the one moment I was like, Little Miss, fuck off. You brought this glass toy to the beach, <laughs> and you're surprised that it got broken? Anyway. You know what, though? I'll, I'll, I'll uh, advocate for the actor, for the character in this way. The actress doesn't do too much with it. She's, she expresses that she's upset. That is true. And then she kind of just shuts down. She doesn't continue to be angry at him later. That um, is true. The way, like, you're, Grace carries that resentment over. And she's a kid. She's a little kid that is true so i think it's okay for her to have like this moment of hey you did this it's your fault but it's also kind of it, it's what compels andrew to want to fix this he's like he caused somebody emotional distress so he he sees this as i broke i not only broke her toy i broke something about her i need to fix that i need to do i need to make this right that's a really good point 
And so when he meets her granddaughter, he still has all this affection for her, especially because it's literally the same actress and she looks identical. So mm-hmm. his feelings that start to develop for her. I don't think that I don't think the movie makes it creepy in any way. It's just it's just sort of one of those things where it's like a little creepy if you overthink it. But his relationship with Portia, I would argue, is unique from the one. With oh, very different. Little very Miss. different. One thing that I noticed is they start to fall in love over a game of chess. Um, or I would say that's the moment I noticed he he started to have what I would call feelings for feelings of love, feelings of want, of desire. And what was what the reason I think that that happened is, Alyssa, I have a really big question for you. I have two really big questions for you. Oh, please. These are very big philosophical questions about the human condition. One, is love the same thing as obsession? So I ask that because in AI, the, the robot, the child robot, David, is programmed, quote unquote, programmed to... I'm sorry, he is programmed to quote unquote love. The 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 way the movie explains it is his maker, Dr. Hobby, says, I'm I I uh, mapped the neural pathways of a single or I'm sorry, I mapped the pathway of a single neuron. So that description sounds more like obsession to me. Like they programmed this robot to be obsessed with its mommy and therefore do anything, sacrifice anything, any part of itself for her. And I think it's a cynical view of of that script, that movie's version or view of what these people think love is, but they are mistaken. They they program a, lo- a robot to be obsessed and they call it love. In this movie, I don't think it's obsession. But my, so my, I, I, instead of letting you answer the question, I just kind of went on, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, um, I'd like to know your perspective because I actually think a little differently. Well, because the second part of this question is, do we learn how to express love from our parents? So in a robot's case, it might be literally programmed into it. This is what love means. This is how you would express love or show love to someone that you need to gain their trust or live with. But in this movie, it seems like love is something that Andrew learns from observing it in, quote unquote, his parents. So what are your thoughts on those two questions? Okay. I think that love and obsession are two very different things. Okay. I think where they overlap I do too. I do too. is the fixation on a particular person. Um, or, it, I mean, if we're talking about obsession with a person versus love of a person. But I think that obsession tends to be selfish and love is not, as a rule. Obviously, there's nuance to this. Um, for me, love is when you are acting for the for the good and well-being of the other person without putting yourself first. And I think obsession is when you are acting acting on the person or acting to the like at the person for your benefit without necessarily considering the other person's. It's basically like exerting your own like obsession is exerting your narrative and exerting your intentions, I guess, onto that person without necessarily considering if they actually want that. If you're you're more obsessed with the outcome than you are with developing a genuine interchange of that, of that well-being with the other person. Because ideally, when you love somebody and when they love you back, you're both looking out for the other's well-being yeah. selflessly. And I mean, hey, if you're obsessed with each other, then I guess maybe it works out. But like, I feel like you're always going to come up against 
that selfishness and like the separate wills that are trying to exert on each other versus an exchange of well-being. Yeah, I think that to me, I think the difference is if you're obsessed, obsession leads to like you want to possess that person. It, it leads to a, like a desire yeah. for possession and control. Right. Whereas what you were sort of describing, like what real love is, is accepting that entering into a relationship with the person, you are going to change them in certain ways, but they are also, you have to be accepting of the fact that they are going to change you as well. And I think that yes. acceptance of that like two-way thing, I think that's, I mean, that's a very simplified uh, right. description of it, of but I think that's what love is on a well, I think that also Foundational exists. Level. I think that definitely um, covers more than just romantic love, also, which I think is also, you know, significant and important. Even though the movie tends to focus on romantic love, um, but True. in terms of learning love, I, I guess my that answer kind of flows into this one, where I don't think that we learn love from just one place. I think that, okay. it's, but I also think that learning love is also about experiencing love. Um, I don't think you can just observe love and then understand it because it is an exchange to me. If you're not experiencing somebody selflessly caring for your well-being, I think it's really hard to maybe be able to give it back. As humans, we are we all innately, I mean not not maybe not all of us, but I think the vast majority of us innately have capacity for love and, and desire love and like require love to function. Um, and that makes it like that, that's the, that seed is what makes it possible for, for observation and experience to develop love within us out of like from an early age and like to start, because obviously we don't understand love completely as children. Yes. Um, but we have, we understand the, concept of like that warm feeling of home and of care and of you know being held I guess doing something selfless for somebody else not because right. you're programmed to but because you get some sort of joy out of their right comfort or their, you know, knowing that you did something for them. I need to go back and rewatch this scene but the moment where where I think Andrew first observes, what he learns is love is when he's watching a chess game between sir and ma'am. I could be wrong about it. You might've seen uh, the movie more, more than I have. So you might remember this a little better. He analyzes the moves that each of them are about to do. And it seems like he analyzes that sir has her in checkmate in like the next move, but then doesn't do that move. Like it's, it's almost like he realizes like you're about to win. And then he looks at sir and realizes, no, you're going to let her win. Or something. I maybe I'm maybe I read it wrong, but I got the sense that that it. was later. What's that? I would need to rewatch it because I understand the parallel yeah, I, that you're drawing in terms of. Uh, see, I didn't. Okay, so I would need to rewatch because I don't remember that. Later in the park is when Porsche, Portia and Andrew are playing mm -hmm. chess, and right, right after that is when he has the conversation where he's trying very hard to declare his love for her, and her response is. One of the most awesome philosophical conversations in this in this movie. I love the point that she brings up. She says, a thing is itself, Andrew. A tree is a tree. Water is water. You are a magnificent machine, but no matter how much you change, that's what you'll always be. Andrew says, I realize I'm not entirely human, and that's why people don't always like or understand me. 
And she says, I do like you and I do sometimes understand you, but I can't invest my emotions in a machine. Mm-hmm. And Andrew's counter argument to this whole, a thing is itself, a tree is a tree, water is water. As things change, Portia, things always change. And he points out water. He actually doesn't point this out to her. He doesn't think of it until later. It's, the, it's yeah, this very human right. thing of, I lost this argument in real time, but later on I came up with the exact yeah, response. Totally. To, to the, <laughs> so I'm going to tell well, my she friend. Challenges him. She challenges him in a way yeah. that maybe his other relationships haven't. But yeah, a thing, uh, things always change. Water is also ice or steam. And we see Andrew go from robot to android to what I would say cyborg, but what he would say is human. And I'm okay with letting yeah. him have that definition. But at the end of the movie, he becomes what he wanted. He changes. He metamorphosized into a different state of the same matter that like the same mind, the same essential core of whatever he is. Oh, which I am jumping at a little bit ahead here with this, but there is a moment when he said, when he explicitly says to Portia, I love you. And I think it's interesting that what he does is he points to his, his eye and he says, I, then he points to his heart and says, love. And then he points to her head, her brain and says, you. So I think from Andrew's perspective, what makes Portia who she is, is her mind. Like he knows that he is a positronic brain inside of a metal body and that's what operates him. But what makes him love, he knows is this organ in his chest, his heart. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I guess the point that, that kind of surprised me that was a bit of a left turn was he didn't point to her heart he pointed to her head. What? Did, how did you feel about that? Well, I think that that actually is maybe, I don't know if they did this intentionally because I can't, I don't think these happen in this order. I think the scene happens a little later, but the first time he goes um, in front of the court to try and declare himself human, mm-hmm. it, he is barred. Like, so he's trying to present, okay, people in this court have artificial organs that I helped invent. The, the, like the, the main councilman in this court has a heart that is artificial right but the way that the councilman responds to him is you don't have a but you don't have a human brain yep. and the, if yep. the brain is what makes him human or like the like the organic and and i mean this uh, to a point like i think that the way that they're the non the non-spiritual or non-religious way of to think of this is the is the thing that you can't what's the word the thing you can't reproduce the thing you can't create out of you know it's like some that like andrew is more than the sum of his parts yeah and so are humans and the thing that that exists that was not built is something that can't be reproduced but for whatever reason because it can't be measured either they have to apply whatever biological limitation exists in in science at that point and Mm -hmm. for them that means a brain because Yep. Until Andrew, you can't build a nervous system, right? Like you can't build an organic brain. Like he literally makes a nervous system. He he mm-hmm. Dr. Frankenstein's himself <laughs> like into a human person with senses. Yeah. But he can still he still never has anything other than a positronic brain. Yeah, and, and so it's, I think it's that this... maybe her organic human brain is what he understands as her humanity. 
And it's this eternal question we've been trying to answer forever for as long as we can think and write and speak to each other is, are you your brain? Are you your mind? Or are you your emotions? Are you your heart? And the my, my answer to that is you are not either. And if you're thinking of it mm-hmm. in those terms, you're going to struggle constantly because it's the I push totally and pull agree. between the two that makes you who you are. It's, it's right. So like the court case, the, the whole fact that a court is deciding whether or not he can be human when he's achieved so much. And he even points out to that first judge, you have one of my parts inside of you. You are also a yes. cyborg. He says, if you are artificial in part, I am human in part. And oh, so good. Even then, this judge, I would argue, you shuts off his heart shuts off his compassion, only uses his intelligence to analyze the situation and come to the, that conclusion that, well, this is the decision we have to make for the court of law, for, for the future of humanity. This is the decision we have to make. And it's definitely the wrong decision. <laughs> the movie definitely yes. realizes like it is the wrong decision. Everybody knows it's the wrong decision. And later on, finally, he does uh, get that decision overturned. He does achieve his his final dream, his final transformation, his final evolution. But man, it's it's only it's only it's only possible because he's gone through this whole entire journey and had all of these discoveries on his own, um, without anybody necessarily holding his hand throughout the way. He ha- he's had people mm-hmm. helping him throughout the way. He's had allies, but he has always been the catalyst for change and the driving force of of all of the action. There's Actually- uh, jump. <laughs> Actually, really quick, the, yeah. on the topic of, of the court case and his personhood and him seeking yes. that out. This is another thing that I find paints a very different picture of the future than the one that we, ha- that we have made in, in the intervening years. Andrew would be a media cause. Andrew would absolutely, a, a, a robot seeking humanity would absolutely be a sensation. There would be yeah. people that we would have whole, like a, like a pundits who are solely dedicated to debating this case on primetime news television every single day. Yeah, it would like not just would be a Supreme be Court decision. So, it's right. also the court this of public be, opinion. Absolutely, because, I mean, that's, I mean, again, the parallels to allowing trans people gay people to have personhood are very, are all there but yep. it's like the the debate of hum, like, of whether or not humanity is something like i guess that's it at the end humanity is not something you can decide another another thing has if yeah. it has it that's innately there you don't get also, to decide this old dude makes a unilateral decision. We just see this conversation. We see Andrew presenting his case, presenting his defense. We see the guy who has the artificial kidney, as Andrew pointed out, thinking about it for a moment and then giving his decision. He doesn't confer with the rest of the judges like the judge later on does when she says, mm-hmm. we need some time to think over this and we'll come back yeah. to you. Um, he makes a unilateral decision, even though he's on a big panel of like other humans that should be that should have a voice in this. It's interesting that like this old white man mm-hmm. uh, just pounds the gavel and is like, nope, not human. Not for well, another 20 years. I think it's significant years. that a, a black woman is the one who bestows his humanity on him. It, Big time. It, and so, and so, although it is interesting that it took like 20 years for them to deliberate that particular 
point. Yes, it is. It's, it's a better, uh, I'm more, I'm, I'm happier with, I'm more satisfied with them taking 20 years to at least consider it and debate it than one dude shutting it down, um, immediately. But yeah, it it is also a thing where it's like, no, that's really not good enough. Like it shouldn't have taken that long. Why? It should not have taken that long. Especially if we're not really seeing like, how does the rest of the world feel? We're not seeing newsreels. We're not seeing interviews or sides or anything. the, The lack of media was like very, jarring to me having living Mm. in America in 2020. You know what? Nobody knows him. He would be famous. This was 99. This was 99. This was two years before. And that's kind of when we, we got used to, or just established a 24 hour news cycle and so th- I guess that's, yeah, that shows that in this sci-fi movie, in this sci-fi story, this version of the future 200 years from now, we had a very different outlook on like what would be important, what would society think and look like. And the only difference is just two years. If it had been made two years later, there would have been a big media storm um, as part I mean, of the- I mean, I think that it is, obviously I know that it was conceived before 9-11, obviously, and filmed. But, like, AI is even so much more violent, <laughs> right? Yeah. As you pointed out, what what changed for us? Well, <laughs> I well mean, we our know. freedom, our freedom, <laughs> quote-unquote, was challenged, right? Oh and that's what God. we doubled down on. We said, like, this is our... Our freedom. I um, I'm, I'm, I try very hard not to get too political in this podcast. Right. But, no, of course. Um, I'm sorry. I introduced a quite no a quite it's, political film to a point. I no, but I what I like is sci-fi allows us to talk about really big concepts in mm-hmm. society and in human interaction. So it sort of allows us to have this barrier between like what we're really talking about and what we're literally talking about that were shown on screen. Right. So I like, I like that we, we get a chance to discuss it, but yeah, I don't, I just don't want to delve too much into like nine no, 11 totally conspiracies fair. or. <laughs> oh, right. No, um, I mean, I guess I think more, more about how it affected mains, the mainstream element of like, right. like you said, the 24 hour news cycle and generally just like, you know, paranoia doesn't seem to exist in the bicentennial man universe. Like, or like any kind of like, like anger barely exists in the bicentennial man universe. True. Yeah. We see a little bit with a little bit of it with Lloyd. We actually see some of it with Andrew and his response to Galatea. (laughs) Right. But yeah. So how, okay. How do you feel about the moment when Portia, uh, it's the moment when Andrew comes in and he's like, kiss me for the sake of science, basically. I want to run an experiment. (laughs) And then he's, she explains to him that following your heart often means doing the wrong thing. And how do you feel about that message? Uh, okay, so that actually made me think about a movie that came out around the exact same time, uh, Pleasantville, okay. um, which I think has not, not exactly the same message. There's a certain transgression puts color into the Pleasantville universe, and that I feel I have mixed feelings about because, like, I don't think that you need to, like, have an affair in order to like put color into your life. I think that's a very problematic idea. But I think that maybe challenging expectations is maybe a more effective way of putting that than doing the wrong thing because who decides, right? Mm. Like who, like what is right and what is wrong and who decides that in what context is, is it right or is it wrong? 
his final bit of evidence, I guess, that justifies that is when he goes, he sneaks up, up to that engagement party. He and Oliver Platt have this very like Scooby-Doo, like Looney Tunes hiding behind the columns. Oh my God, totally. Uh, <laughs> <scene>. <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> and they're, they're sort of like spying on this party they weren't invited to. And she sees that uh, Portia's about to marry Jay Johnston from Mr. Show with Bob and David, another like character actor that I really love. He makes a lot of like insults about him. Uh, he mm-hmm. points out that his his teeth are uneven and sharp, and like he says, his face looks like an antique can opener, which I think is an his interesting. His chin could sink the Titanic. His chin could sink the Titanic, but the can opener bit, antique can opener, mm-hmm. and he like makes fun mm-hmm. of the noise that it makes. He is again mm-hmm. biased towards lesser appliances or lower life form appliances, uh, even though that's how he started out his life. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, it's very human, isn't it? Because we're also like, oh, you know, people like we're living like back in the dark ages with whatever. I'm trying to think of of a good parallel. Comes, he draws the conclusion though, that if I'm jealous, that means I'm in love. And I think that sort of ties to my question of like, does, does, does this movie at least, or do some people see those two as the same thing? Love and obsession as basically the same thing or jealousy? Jealousy certainly is a human emotion. I think that it's something that is pretty exclusive. Well, not actually, I don't even say it's exclusive to humanity. I actually don't think that's true. That's obviously not true because I think there's also an element of biology in jealousy that has been like misused to like further certain agendas that I think are mistaken, but in terms of paternity and stuff like that. But I don't think that jealousy and love actually I think jealousy can coexist with love but I think that it is a mistaken application of of your love for another person because of course when you love somebody you want that returned right and like that when you are like so so invested in 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 that other person you want them to be equally invested in you and when you perceive that they are not equally invested in you you're jealous of what other whatever other investment they appear to have yeah so i understand that to a point but i guess that's where a very i think important concept in this movie comes in and mm-hmm. that is the concept of surrender and that's actually a concept that i think a lot about in terms of its relationship to love and going back to the, the, my description of it as selfless because surrender is like an incredibly powerful action. And it's something that allows that this is not about you and your will. And jealousy is about you and your will. It requires tremendous trust, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. That is exactly right. So surrender, that, that's something that I think is not quite the same as deference because obviously like they talk a lot about Andrew's deference being programmed into him as mm-hmm. a functional servant but surrender is obviously something that is a decision that's true and that's his final decision really right precisely his his decision to surrender to humanity to being a human right and that's where they that's where the court drew the line of him being a human or not is that immortality right but surrendering to to being a human means surrendering to death and also surrendering to I mean to love also in this case like he obviously fought for the, for that love and didn't surrender in that way he could have removed himself from those kind of relationships entirely 
right? Well, he the way could have made life a little easier on himself. Yeah, he could have reprogrammed that part of him that's making them feel this pain or discomfort in that context. Right. He could have very easily, quote unquote, fixed that or had Northam Robotics, quote unquote, fix that for him. But he chose mm-hmm. not to. He chose to live with the pain. And the way he describes when he's when he's asking when he's asking Rupert about sex. And he want he has this idea of making him capable of actually like having sex. And he the way he describes sex is oh in those God. terms of surrender. Totally. And he says totally. this really great line about how you can go to heaven and come back alive. And then you mm-hmm. can do that again later on. <laughs> yeah, whenever you want. Right. Whenever you right. want. No, that that is a very profound moment. Well, and that's another, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier when Oliver Platt is, I want to experience that too. It's like that. Yeah. That is such an essential element. And obviously, like, there are there are a lot of ways to look at sex. And this is a very, very romantic and profound one. Uh, and obviously, not all sex has to be experienced that way. But I think that it is, it would be a mistake to discount that as one of the best ways <laughs> to experience sex and one of the most profound ways to not only experience sex, but to experience your humanity in, yeah. in communion with another person. Here and and so from Oliver Platt's perspective, like hearing another person, because he definitely considers Andrew a person, describe something that they they want so badly in these very vivid terms. And when you hear that, it's something that you realize or he realizes in this moment, like I I could have this. I am capable of having this, but I never have. And wow, that sounds like so I I feel like he's his realization, his eye-opening moment from Andrew describing that. Is, is Rupert has never even imagined that it could be that great. Mm-hmm. And he's just so swept up by Andrew's description of it. Yeah, it's a real, real big moment of connection. And so is, of course, the actual act later on when he consummates with Portia. Portia. And Portia is, is very important to Andrew in terms of being accepted by humanity as a whole. He kind of props her up to represent all of humanity for him. And it's this, the, the conclusion of the movie is like that final court case where he's pleading his case for the final time. He says, I would rather die a man than live forever as a machine. And they ask him, why is that so important? And um, he says, it's the only thing that's been driving him, his entire purpose for, for continuing forward, his whole entire existence is to be acknowledged for who and what I am. And Portia asks him a little more directly and a little more specifically, why though, why do you need to hear it from them? Why, like, if you already, you already, you've experienced people loving you, you've experienced friendship, you've experienced our life together up to this point. So why do, do you need to hear it from this court? And he says, old habits, I started my existence as a robot. I still like to be told certain things. And then That's he dies. Profound. And then he mm-hmm. dies a moment before he actually receives that validation from the court because mm-hmm. he dies holding the hand of Portia who has already given him that, who has already right. acknowledged him for who and what he is. And he, I think it's, I think him dying is him finally realizing that she has accepted me. I don't think he, I think he's always had this hang up and that I think part of his quest to get this court decision is that will convince her. But once he sees they're laying, they're laying in these like old person uh, hospital machine beds next to each other holding hands. And he, he sees finally, oh no, she does accept me 100%. She loves me unconditionally. He allows himself to, to end. And it's a very beautiful, but kind of, kind of tragic moment. Uh, I mean, it's but like it's, the it's uplifting. Right? 
it's hopeful. It's what? It's the yeah. notebook? It's like the notebook. The, the couple dies together at the end after, it was sort of like coincidentally, they happen to die at the same time. But it's impl- implied that he dies following her, essentially. Like she dies and then he follows her as a matter yeah. of their as a matter of course, because they're soulmates. And I this thought is, a little differently. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. In terms of, I thought that it was more, he died. First of all, there's an element of humans die, right? So by virtue of dying, he's human. But also there's that element of then, I mean, I guess there are a couple ways of looking at it because that also, that implies as a human, he'll go to an afterlife. So, cause she says, I'll see you soon. So then he, so he did hear it really. But then also the, the idea of, he can't got to a point where he didn't need it that he just he knew who he was and obviously having that legal acknowledgement is in many ways essential but it's also in the case of the movie really just symbolic because there is no one else like him there are no other robots that have what he has at least as far as we see it's a little bit like an honorary oscar <laughs> where it's like here we're like we're giving you this like right before you die uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and that's not to say you didn't earn it that's not to say you don't deserve it but it's like a little bit you know not consolation prizey but like he decided he realized that like that wasn't the point right yeah like not needing their particular yep. accolade he did the moment he did not need their approval is the moment that he finally was a human, whether they approve it or not. And, and that's the moment he surrenders to death. I have my final thoughts about the movie. I have two bonus questions that you know if you listen to an episode of the podcast. But I have my final thought, which is uh, the very last thing Portia orders Galatea, Nurse Galatea, who we've, we just mm-hmm. find out in this scene, has become human, kind of like in the way that Andrew has. Yeah. Has adopted a human appearance, at least. At it's not least. Really, it's not really clarified whether or not she's... Because, I mean, honestly, it seems like she doesn't necessarily see herself as human because she accepts... I, I mean, I can't tell if it's an ironic order or not, but, like, she accepts the law, first law of robotics, or second, maybe. Second law. She violates it. Well, yes and no. It's kind of like she does what is asked of her, and she's not... I mean, is she harming? Because that's the thing. Is she harming? Yes. Well, through well, yes, an action, through an action. No, through action. I mean, but in that, action, like she, because she unplugs her. Yeah, actively. And so, but, if she unplugs her, then she is dying, and she has the capability to, in that moment, plug her back in, and does not. Mm-hmm. So that inaction, I guess, it's kind of both, would injure the human being in her care. And the second law states that she must obey that order, except where that order comes in conflict with the first. So I guess it, it is, it does drive, it does come down to whether it violates the first law or not. And again, this is because they're in this order. I do think that it violates the second and the, and therefore the first law. It do, Okay. So in the letter of the law, it does. However, I guess this is the question of euthanasia, right? Mm, Where it's, this is the desire. It is the desire of this person to die. Mm -hmm. They do not see it as harm. They see it as the outcome they want. And you could very humanly see continuing to suffer as as harm when you could humanely, compassionately. So is Galatea performing harm? Like legally speaking, yes, she is... (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't even want to say murder because it's like, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that would be qualified as a murder, um, legally speaking. But like, yes, she is causing this person to die. However, whether the question of harm is a different one, because this is not in the in the way that the Porsche is looking at it. It's not harm. 
I think her, Galatea's ability to follow that order and interpret it the way you described it proves that she's not only gotten this synthetic human skin, but whether she's gotten gone through the same process as Andrew or not, she has become more human to be able yes. to make that choice. Yeah. I mean, the, we didn't really touch on it, but I guess there's also like a nature versus nurture argument here as well. Please elaborate. Well, in terms of Galatea, so if we're contrasting Andrew and Galatea, Andrew seems to have had an innate spark of humanity that emerges very early. Galatea, we don't really know because we just don't, we meet her much later in her in her existence. However, she does seem to adopt more willful characteristics. Like when, for example, when her per personality chip is not there, she is more willful, mm -hmm. which suggests that, which there is a suggestion there that all of the robots have the capacity to be like Andrew but we don't really know. We just don't have enough information. So you can sort of start to talk about that argument, but there's not enough information to really make a conclusion about what the movie's trying to say. Well, it's like a pre-programmed personality sort of overrides the possibility of creating a person from a blank yeah. slate. Oh man, well, there's, well that's definitely an, inter an interesting idea of the ways that we perform or like seek to perform certain personality traits. I mean, I guess it's like a little bit like social media, right? Like when you're only putting out a certain personality, how much of that becomes you and how much of that obviously like isn't real. Think about it in these terms. If you bought a computer or a phone from a friend and they didn't delete it before giving it to you, that phone, that computer, that iPad, that whatever type of tablet, that device that has so much of that person's thoughts, preferences in terms of color, layout, design, background photo, the things, the apps that they've downloaded, like uh, um, the programs they use, the, the documents they have, that's their brain, that's their personality, that's who they are on this device. And if you got that, obtained that from that person for your own personal use, you're probably gonna erase it first. You're gonna want it to start as a blank slate so it can be your personality. So as much or as these- Or else it's going to change the way you relate to the device. Right. You have to sort of put your personality in between the cracks of the already existing one there, or it's going to contradict or some things that you're trying to, the to get it to do. that it's reflecting. Yeah. So as much as these robots are appliances, Galatea is like one that already has these apps and, and programs and stuff on it. And do you think that she gets reset later on and is able to develop, like, does she get the personality so. chip- no. Okay. I don't think she's reset. I think the personality chip is reinserted, but I okay. also, I mean, at least that's what's implied. It's kind of hard to say, but I think that she, I mean, maybe the exposure to Andrew and the exposure to being treated as, as human in a more full way. Once, obviously once um, Rupert realizes what he has done when he's confronted by Andrew sort of like because Andrew steals the personality chip for those of you who have not watched the movie uh, out of Galatea, which makes mm -hmm. her much more willful and resistant to being treated as an employee, effectively a slave by Rupert. Yep. Rupert comes to Andrew to get the chip back and makes um, the mistake of kind of referring to Galatea in purely robotic terms Yep. In ways that do not acknowledge her her dignity or or her potential humanity, which obviously is offensive to Andrew. Mm -hmm. So I wonder that maybe coming out of that lesson, if if Rupert's treatment of Galatea infuses her with humanity. Yeah, especially having seen an example of another NDR that is willful, that does 
choose its own destiny that is building its own future and representation is super important isn't it it's she until she has a model for what she could right. become she she is not even programmed to be able to to allow herself to imagine a future for herself where she is free till andrew makes that possible for her by taking that choice away from rupert and making it her choice okay Alyssa, i want to know your final thoughts on this movie and i want you to conclude with is this movie a plus one a neutral or minus one for robots? And I will let you interpret that question however you like. Okay, I think, so the movie overall, I think is a is a great conversation starter. I think that in, in it's, obviously there's a lot about it that is like very moving and very emotional. And in that way, it's effective as a story. I think there's stuff about it that's like a little cheesy and like goofy, but that's fine. I think that it's still a perfectly effective movie that can start conversations. I really think that applying, for me, the enjoyment that I got out of the movie came out of obviously doing this, but also like thinking about these big questions and thinking about the way that to apply some of these thoughts in like your daily life as like the way you you, you treat other human beings. (laughs) Like this movie isn't about robots really, right? Like I guess like most of sci-fi. It's about how we treat each other as people. So yes. I think that's that's what I take away from it. And in that way, I think that it is effective uh, and successful. That was kind of, I mean, I've, I've already talked a lot about sort of like my like takeaways in terms of it like being like a trans narrative or like social justice narrative. But at the end of the day, it is just about how we treat other human beings and how we allow them the dignity to exist as they are, especially when they're not causing harm. In terms of whether or not I think this movie is a plus or a minus for robots... Or neutral. Or neutral. We only we only deal in binaries, zeros and ones, the language of robots. <laughs> I'm going to say that I I actually think, hmm, this actually, hmm, this, this is tougher than I thought. This, because I think I may have answered my own question where I just said this isn't a movie about robots. Because it kind of isn't. Because Andrew's a human. <laughs> because Andrew's a person. Uh, and I didn't really think about that before I started watching the movie. I and mean, obviously there are robots in it in terms of like, I think Galatea remains a robot, sort of. But I I think I would say, you know what? I'm actually going to give this a plus to robots. I don't think it's neutral. I, don't, I definitely don't think it's negative because I don't think that it presents robots as destructive. Quite the opposite. They're, they're not Terminators. Right. They're not Terminators and they're not like voids, right? They, you know, have stuff going on. And I guess in that sense, it's not neutral because they're not voids. But I guess, I, yeah, I guess I would, yeah, I would definitely say it's positive for robots, plus one for robots, because it is, because robots are a reflection of this society that makes them. And in this case, we did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. I th- but I, I also think, like in AI, we when we designed these robots, when we offered, when we built them and programmed them, we tried to be idealistic about it and not and deliberately not make them complete humans capable of the right. extremes that we all are capable of. We only wanted them to have our best parts, our our smartest parts of our brain and our most compassionate parts of our hearts. And it's kind of up to. That, yeah, it's kind of up to the hero to go on this journey, Andrew, and to find what makes him human throughout, throughout, despite that initial programming. Alyssa, do you know that my two, bon- my two bonus questions that I'm going to ask you? I don't. 
Okay, because you've if you've listened to a past episode, it's I, I did, but questions. I completely I've forgotten entirely, and I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's better that you don't remember them. Okay. First question: This is a section of robots versus dinosaurs that we call "What's your snack, Alyssa? What's your snack?" When the bigger question that I'm asking is: When you used to go to movie theaters, what snack did you like to have? And now that we're all watching movies at home, do you have a movie snack or meal or anything you like to eat while watching a movie? Okay, my number one movie snack in a movie theater is Twizzlers, a big pack of Twizzlers, and I will finish them within 15 minutes of the movie starting. At home, it will either be popcorn, because we make stovetop popcorn at home, or ice cream, which is a perfect food. I mean, they're all perfect foods, aren't they? So, but yeah. Lots of sugar, lots of salt. My movie snacks, 100%. Awesome. Same. I'm a big fan of popcorn. I don't make popcorn at home. I've said this several times. I actually don't own a microwave. I have tried still making. I've tried, um, Alyssa, and I think it just makes my neighbors concerned with the burning smell. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Teach you. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I my go to movie snack has also lately been licorice, but specifically Mm. Australian licorice. And I've kind of become obsessed with it. And I, it's not sort of a self-perpetuating right? cycle. No, absolutely not. I want to be clear about that for my listeners. Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, please don't die. <laughs> yeah, no, that that like anise flavor is not good to me. But licorice itself, like Twizzlers. I really like Twizzlers, but I've discovered Australian licorice. And there's this mm-hmm. brand I really like called Daryl Lee that I get at my local bodega. And <laughs> it's just what the difference is the chewiness of it, the texture of it. So I, uh, that's what I had. And it's sort of this thing where like, the more I talk about it with my guests on this show, the more like when I'm at a store thinking like, oh, I'm going to be watching a movie tonight. I'm like, well, I'm going to get some Australian licorice so I could talk about it again, <laughs> but also because it's delicious. That's delightful. So if you've never tried it. I highly recommend look for some Daryl Lee Australian licorice. It also you comes in. You need to reach like, out to them and have have them sponsor you. I'm trying. I'm going to keep mentioning them until either they reach out to me or uh, <laughs> until maybe one of my listeners writes to them. But I'm 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 going to try to shamelessly solicit some. Uh, um, Why not? Some promotion they're, they're getting from some, so much free publicity from you already. Yep. Pay up, um, Daryl Lee. So just just to be clear, I'm not expecting anything in return, but it'd be nice, Daryl Lee, if you wanna if you're listening and you wanna throw me some free licorice, I'll continue promoting you. So anyway, <laughs> that's my snack, and um, uh, I love that your snack is Twizzlers, popcorn, I and love ice cream. Twizzlers. Do you do the thing where you turn your Twizzler into a straw and drink your beverage with it? I have done it before, but that's not my typical thing. Okay, I I, I like to do that just to get that like sugar overload, <laughs> with, like juice or soda. Okay, so final question. Oh man. Okay. If we were to replace any two actors in this movie by Centennial Man with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, which actors would you recast and how would it improve or change the movie? Okay. I I would probably replace, hmm. Oh man, this is a tough one actually, because I kind of, I'm battling it out in my mind for one specific character that I think either would play very well Oh man, this is really hard. This is a lot harder than I thought. My God, this is like, this is philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you want to hear my, my, one of my picks? Oh, please, please do. Please. Do you, well, do you want to go for Cause if you need some time, I want, I don't want to influence uh, your no, choice. You, no, you, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Okay. Lloyd, I want to keep adult Lloyd as Bradley Whitford, but child Lloyd, Danny DeVito. <laughs> Oh my God. That's so good. I didn't even think of that, but that's genius. (laughs) That is pretty genius. 
Okay, I think I figured it out. I think I figured it out. All right, I think I would replace as much as, as much as I adore him in this movie. I would replace Oliver Platt with Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg because then it would give me some Rita Mae Brown ghost vibes, where like he's like Whoopi would be like the guiding force for Andrew in the same way that Rita Mae Brown is the guiding force for Demi Moore. Big yes. This. And then also I would replace Galatea with Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> So we get all of the the personality <laughs> of Danny DeVito in Galatea. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is an inspired choice. I Thank you. was yeah, I was not thinking that direction at all. But that is man. Now I can't think of anybody else other than other than Child Lloyd that I would. Oh, that's put. that's brilliant. I love that personally. <laughs> Where I would place Whoopi Goldberg, I, I love the idea of Whoopi Goldberg as Rupert Burns, but I, I don't know. I kind of also love the idea of Whoopi Goldberg as either as Andrew. I think she, just because she's a great performer, I think she'd be incredible oh, totally. as Andrew or as Sir, as mm. Sam Neill's character. I don't want to lose Sam Neill, but I do right. think they both have this sort of like somber seriousness that they can play in addition to the comedy that they're both really good at playing. There's something yeah. I see like similar between Sam Neill and, and Whoopi Goldberg in terms of like performances I've seen from them that I think she would be awesome in that role. <laughs> I love that. And actually, I think that you bring up something that we haven't talked about yet, but that I think is kind of like hard to avoid when we're talking about this movie. I mean, Robin Williams as a performer, like first of all, this movie made me miss him <sighs> desperately. Yo. Desperately. I think he does a good obviously this is this can be hard this is this is a difficult role in a lot of ways yeah. because for the first half of the movie we don't see him really and obviously in the last half of the movie it's like this childlike element that still has to have this ancient quality and i think that he he really just sells it i think especially it's, so it's a hard role it is knowing it's challenging. knowing knowing what robin williams was going through and and you know how that unfortunately ended it's i think it's especially poignant when we look at those scenes where he's saying things like you know one wishes to have more expressions one has thoughts and feelings that presently do not show um mm. it's cruel that you can cry and i cannot i've heard uh. robin williams compared to like that classic pagliacci joke the oh yeah. or the man goes to the doctor says i'm a doctor i'm depressed doctor says Pagliacci, the great clown, is is coming to town. Go see Pagliacci and you'll be fine. You won't be depressed anymore. And he says, Doctor, I am Pagliacci. So yeah, I've, oh, like Robin that's Williams. Heartbreaking. Is, How is that even a joke? That's like heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, this we didn't really dig too much into this movie's definition of humor, but this movie does explore that. How is that, that a joke? That's true. And yeah, Robin Williams was absolutely as a person going through it. He was going through depression, but constantly playing clowns and being, you know, this this performer on the stage to make all of America laugh and forget their sadness. And I and one way of looking at it, the way I kind of look at it is that burden ended up being too much for him to bear. And, you know, it was a very, very tragic ending for this actor. This is such a great philosophical science fiction movie. I, like I said, I watched AI for an episode a few, a few weeks ago, and we talked for hours about that movie too, just like we did with this one. I really wasn't even expecting to have this much to unpack. But Chris Columbus is a fantastic director, and he gets humans, and he's able to tell stories about humans in all of their glory and ugliness. And I appreciate that this movie is is 
it's it's sterile in a lot of ways. It's it's PG in a lot of ways, but it's also honest in a lot of ways that it, it's only able to be because we're looking at it through the lens of science fiction and not too much grounded reality. Well, and honest in the way of conveying that honesty can be found in the ideals as well as in like the grittiness. We kind of tend to tend to align truth and honesty with the gritty, dirty, cynical parts. But there's like the his description of sex is a profound truth that is very honest about, you know, the way that you that that sex and communion can be experienced and to overlook that or to dismiss it would be a mistake. It mm-hmm. would be inhuman, I, I think. Yeah, it's shutting off or cutting off parts of you that make you a complete human. And Precisely. so we, what we kind of need to see in a lot of sci-fi movies or what we're or always writing or filming them to, to show ourselves or to explore for ourselves is if we can't, um, we, we have trouble with opening up those parts of ourselves that we might have cut off, but we can look at like a robot character as a blank slate who is seeking those things for the first time. So that allows us to really explore that from the, from the lens of discovery rather than rediscovery. Absolutely. And since you bring up Chris Columbus being the director of this movie, uh, mm-hmm. also a fun fact, a producer on this movie is Mark Radcliffe, who is Daniel Radcliffe's father. Oh, whoa, cool. Okay, so, and then Chris Columbus went on to direct how many, like two of the Harry Potter movies, right? Yeah, the first two. And that's actually how they cast Daniel Radcliffe because obviously he and Chris Columbus and Mark Radcliffe knew each other. And he was like, oh, my son looks like Harry Potter. Let's audition him. There was another connection that I found in my IMDb rabbit hole when I was researching the movie, which is that M. Beth Davids and the character, or the act, I'm sorry, the actress that plays her sister, who is, uh, her sister is Grace. Angela Landis is the woman that plays her, the adult Grace. Both of those actresses went on to be on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> how funny. And I'm not familiar enough with Grey's Anatomy to talk about how how present either of them are, but I just thought that was a it's it, it's it's that thing where it's like oh these people are in this project and this director is involved and this producer is involved and then like you can connect those yarns to pins on the wall <laughs> yeah but just a little fun fact there yeah and I guess you know that's where we'll leave off is Alyssa do you is there anything about this movie that we might have missed or that you think I don't know about this movie or wouldn't know about this movie and then we'll we'll wrap up after that. I mean, apart from the fact that Daniel Radcliffe's dad produced it. <laughs> That's a cool piece of trivia. I guess in general, just in engaging engaging with these questions is important. And it's going to seem like some of it's going to seem maybe a little, maybe a little idealistic or maybe a little squishy, but this is the foundation of how we make the decision to move forward and to, to not engage with those things is just to exist, not to live. Especially since we are literally building AIs and we need to explore these the answers to these questions before we put them out into the world. And we're, we're hurtling towards that, that being used reality. To, to hurt other people. <laughs> yep. So yeah. the morality is an essential thing to examine in the context well, of, of the dignity of humanity. I can't thank you enough for bringing this movie onto the podcast so we could explore all of those big questions and, and talk about it in this context and uh, in this much detail. This was a fantastic conversation. and Thank you. It, it was. It was my pleasure. Yeah, I, pr- I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is such a great movie. If you haven't seen it and you just listened to this conversation about it, go and watch it for yourself. Because again, you know, there's nothing like 
you, you can read about other people's experience. You can hear about other people's experiences, but you have to, part of being a human is you have to experience it for yourself. So check out Bicentennial Man starring Robin Williams and uh, coming up soon on Robots versus Dinosaurs. We've been covering a lot of robot movies on here. So coming up, we have a few things coming down the pipeline, including Don Bluth's We're Back and a few other exciting dino films. So you dino fans that have been jonesing for more dinosaur episodes of Robots vs. Dinosaurs. They're coming, don't worry. But this was a fantastic robot movie. I highly recommend it to all you Robo fans. Thank you, Alyssa, and thank you for your time today. Thank you. This has been so wonderful. I really appreciate you having me on. Andrew is more than the sum of his parts, and so are humans. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. 